difficult piece of acting you had to do in The Shining? I think it was just stamina. finish my sentence. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to start the fucking show. Yeah, bud. A momentary loss of muscular coordination. I mean, a few extra foot pounds of energy per second per second means yeah, bud. <laughs> Welcome 
to the show Friends, where we review, rate, and discuss movies, not horror films, except there's one exception we will have tonight. We will be discussing a film, and that film is The Shining. Let me welcome you guys to episode 50 of the Joe Blow Horror Show. I hope you guys have your wetsuits on you've got your protection everybody has got rubbers condoms and you guys are ready because we are going to just explode information in and around your ear holes for what is arguably the greatest not only movie in history but horror history in general Tonight we'll be discussing 1980s Stanley Kubrick version of The Shining. With me as always is Tibu. What's up, buddy? Yeah, bud. Tonight is going to be electric. Can't fucking wait. We also have what I would call a historian, an expert. Get ready for a master class. We're not even going to charge you for this information. We have with us, once again, the Busy Bee. What is up, buddy? Boy, uh, happy to be here, boys. Um, yeah, this is, this is a fun one. This is, what, this is what all the training comes down to. That's right. We have compiled about two or three months of information into this one episode for you guys. We are going to build this as the most in-depth review and discussion of The Shining you will ever subject your ears to. We have <laughs> pretty much most of the bases covered, and I hope you guys are going to enjoy it half as much as we do. Guys, it's, it's, we've, we've been teasing this episode for a while. This is the big 5-0 for the Joe Blow Horror Show. We wanted to do something special. And what better than The Shining? Whether or not you like this movie, you love this movie, or you're indifferent to it, I don't know that there's any cinephile out there that cannot, at the very least, admit the impact this movie has had, not only in the horror genre, but in cinema in general. There is probably not another movie out there that has such a cult following with the theories that this movie has birthed. And we are going to go headstrong, shoulders deep, balls deep, shoulder pads into <laughs> The Shining. Do you guys have anything you want to get off your chest before we, you know, play the cracker game and get a lot of stuff on people's chest here? Because this movie is going to get pretty, this is going to, this is going to be an interesting, uh, interesting episode here. I'm, I'm kind of pumped. Yeah. I'm going to echo you in saying that this is probably, I mean, it's, it's right up there with the all time classics of the horror genre. And like you said, any cinephile worth their salt respects this film. Uh, Stanley Kubrick is a genius and as far as the amount of information available out there about The Shining his version of The Shining this film all the theories everything involved it's it's mind-blowing and it's a, it's it's like a, a fucking mountain of information 
it, it, it's incredible, man. I cannot wait. And I'm so happy that we have Busy B here because without him, this ship would not be sailing as smoothly. Yeah, I echo both of you guys. I appreciate the invite on this. And this is something that I've, uh, on the past appearances, I've always mentioned that this is um, hands down one of my favorite movies. I rented it as a child. I think I was eight years old when I saw it. I got it from the uh, local library, uh, VHS, rated R movie. I, you know, they allowed me to rent those. So uh, my brother and I both were subjected to this at a young age. I think I've quoted this movie. Luckily, grew up with a bunch of similar-minded high school friends, and this was our dumb and dumber. We quote this movie every time <laughs> each other. This is our. Uh, um, this is everything and anything to me. At least watch it once a year for the past. Jeez, uh, since it's probably came out. So um, probably my thirtieth viewing, uh, just today. And don't let Busy B's modesty fool you. He is in the upper echelon of what I would consider experts in the movie, just with the amount of time that he puts into researching it to the number of viewings as well, too. And that's a great segue into let's talk about the very first time we experienced or heard of or seen this movie. The very first time I saw this movie, I was a wee lad far too young to be witnessing what is eventually going to be known as a masterpiece. My parents had rented it. Again, I've told the story a million times. My uncle owned a family video in Northern Minnesota. Our Friday nights consisted of going into town, stopping by McDonald's, getting your favorite Happy Meal, going, I'd rent a Nintendo game and a movie. And I remember my mom, for the most part, wasn't into movies, but she rented one, and I didn't think much of it. And I remember she started it out in what was our living room, I guess, and after about 20 or 30 minutes, turned it off, and later that night was watching in her room because she realized this is not something that kids can see. I remember being a kid sitting down in the doorway her door wasn't closed all the way but it was cracked and i remember sitting there watching this being too scared to move and the scene of the lady coming out of the so probably one of the first times i'd, I'd seen boobs but i think <laughs> that was wiped clear from my memory with that cackling old lady that absolutely terrified me and then falling asleep at the foot of my mom's bed and not telling her why. So this movie absolutely terrified me as a kid. What about you, Tibu? I saw this as a teenager, actually, um, a, a little while after I discovered that I love film. And I already loved the horror genre, even as a kid, thanks to Joe Bob and Monster Vision. But The Shining is just one I hadn't gotten around to until a little bit later. I finally watched it and it's with each consecutive viewing, I find more and more and more to fall in love with, to be entranced by. This movie takes a hold of you. And I think a lot of that has to do with the source material being great and then a genius taking the source material and just loading it with so much subtext that we're still talking about it fucking over 40 years later. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. You're right. Um... A movie like this, it, it deserves the special treatment that we are giving it tonight. So, and I, I, You know what? A, a film like this one, so special. 
I think uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't stop in at our favorite spot, the Titty Twister. Let's get some drinks, fellas, before we dive into this movie. Tonight, with as special of a movie as we have, we have paired it with a special concoction of beers as well. And I'm going to let Busy B introduce us to his pairing of tonight's movie. Yeah, for sure. Um, we're doing uh, kind of our local breweries around here. Uh, first one I got down is uh, Big Grove Brewery out of Iowa City. Hazer Things, it's kind of a throw on the Stranger Things. It's a dart is the name of it. Hazy IPA. These guys produce awesome beers, pretty consistent, crushable. We actually are going to be pairing this with four special beers for this movie. You can take it to the bank, the fact that we are going to be drinking more than four. But what I have chosen for my two special ones is a friend of the show, Single Speed Brewing, again, this is the spectrum of clarity, which I thought was fits well with The Shining, and we'll get into that as well too. Spectrum of Clarity is an American triple IPA. The last one we have, I am going to save. Oh, actually, never mind. Yeah. Busy Bee's got one more. So I'm going on the uh, more of an '80s theme and sort of a VHS uh, thing going here. Next one I have up is uh, it's also another uh, single speed brewing out of Waterloo, Iowa. Uh, this one's 16 Sandals. It's a uh, double dry hop, New England style, double IPA. Uh, it's part of their Nimble series. Uh, consistently awesome uh, beers that these guys produce too. Waterloo is a uh, town I used to live in, so I'm. Very happy for that brewery. The last one I have chosen, I am saving my favorite for last. This is Surly Brewing, which again is another friend of the show. This is their pentagram. This is going to be interesting. I'm just, I'm just going to really read you. They've got a couple interesting things they say with each of their beers. So this arcane seal guards an enigmatic brew that is funky, dark, and sour. If you choose to have the seal, you have been warmed, warned. 100% Bretto Nemesis dark beer fermented in stainless and aged in used red wine barrels. Brett is a unique yeast strain that produces flavors that would be considered offensive if they were not intentional. Flavors of sour cherry, tobacco, oak, and classic Brett barnyard Lunk balanced by dark Munich malt chewiness. Enjoy immediately or age at cellar temperature for a couple years. This pentagram is going to pair well with the show. And it just depends on how you interpret the movie as well as interpreting the flavors of the beer. Tibu, good sir, what have you got on the menu for tonight? All right, I also went with some local brews um, up first. I have from out of it's out of Abita Springs, Louisiana. It's uh, made by Abita Brewing, the Chocolate Doberge Cake Stout. 
brewed with cocoa nips and vanilla. Um, fashioned from the classic New Orleans dessert, our chocolate doberge cake stout is layered with sweet cocoa nibs, vanilla, and milk sugar to create a rich and decadent sweetness with velvety chocolate notes. This is a first time try for me, so I'm looking forward to it. 8% by volume. But the big daddy that I'm saving, um, you can you can spot this on a uh, Instagram and other social medias, is a Belgian stout made by Bayou Tesh Brewing. And they're out of Arneville, which is, I don't know, 10 miles down the road from me. It's their Loop Guru, aged on white oak. And um, for anyone out there who doesn't know, a Loop Guru or a Rougarou is the Cajun French phrase for a werewolf and is also Bayou Tesh's Brewing limited edition Belgian-inspired imperial stout crafted with an insane amount of chocolate, roasted Belgian malts, brown sugars, and French hops. This, this thing I'm looking forward to, and it's also 8% by volume. And I chose these because um, the chocolate stout is, you know, Dick Halloran offering Danny some chocolate ice cream. I'm like, that'll go good. All good call. And Jack Torrance kind of werewolves out yep. in a way. He goes wild and werewolves out, as Joaquin would say in Joker. So that's my pairing for tonight. I can't wait to dive into these beers. Let's crack some, fellas. Oh, hell to the yeah. All right, Loop Guru. Let's see what you do. All right, buddy. Cheers. Cheers. We are going to move right into the movie we know as The Shining. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970. I hired a man named Charles Grady is the winter caretaker. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family with an axe. Well, you can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. <laughs> that's right. Mom? Do really want to go and live in that hotel for the winter? Sure I do. It'll be lots of fun. The only thing that can get a bit trying up here during the winter is uh, the tremendous sense of isolation. Is there something bad here? I fear you will have to deal with this matter in the harshest possible way. I did that. I killed you with Danny. You did this to me. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Here's Johnny. <laughs> Shining is a 1980 horror film by Stanley Kubrick. Written and directed. This is rated R. It's coming in at two hours and 26 minutes. What do we think this got on the B? Um, I haven't, again, in keeping with tradition, I haven't looked this up, but it's the fucking Shining. I'm going to give it like an 8.7, 8.8 on the B. What about you, Busy B? You know, and I think this one probably gets reviewed monthly. 
and probably and I don't know I'm not sure how IMDb does their metric if it's just a one-time shot how many people actually is it users I, I think it's just users yep yep yeah it's gonna have some controversy too uh I'm gonna say 8.9 8.4 what do we think this hmm. got on Rotten Tomatoes the critic score not the audience 100 percent Wait, no, that no, 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 that wouldn't make sense. Fuck, ninety-four percent. I'll, I'll fucking go there with it. What up, you, Bisbee? Uh, I'm gonna probably say Rotten Tomatoes is, uh, you know, uh, a little bit more on the cinephile si- uh, side. I'm gonna put it at a ninety-eight. Can you believe this is only an eighty-four percent? On you're kidding me. 8.4 and 84. That might be a first. At least it's the first on the Joe Blow. That's crazy because 84 is. is the number that we always associate all my high school buddies. And we that's like our number. And then that's our movie. No so I'm gonna, the, we're, we're going to freak out after this. I'm already freaked out. Oh, man. The stars are yep. aligning. Yep, it, it is. fucked up. For it to match up with IMDb does not make sense. Wow. So that, that, that in itself is, is a little bit interesting, actually, or a lot of bit interesting. So as I said, this was directed by Stanley Kubrick. I think everybody knows who Stanley Kubrick is. I would say he's most notable for A Clockwork Orange or 2001 A Space Odyssey. He also wrote this, but he also wrote this with, with a longtime friend named Diane Johnson. This movie stars Shelley Duvall, as Wendy, Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance, Danny Lloyd as Danny Torrance. That is our main, well, I, I guess we got Scatman Crothers as Dick Holleran, but that's about it. I mean, there's a few other kind of character actors that are, are got small parts in this, but that's the meat of the movie. Ultimately, it's really a three, three-person show between those two uh, as well. We are going to just jump right into the development of the film. And again, I am not taking a sip every time I say the word film because we are reviewing a actual film tonight. And I'm, I'm proud of that. But we're going to do things a little bit different because this is not a fireside chat. This is not a regular episode. This is a movie that deserves the attention that we are going to give it. So we're going to get into the development of the film. The first thing that we are going to talk about is King versus Kubrick. Anybody that knows anything about the movie knows that the movie and the book are are, are quite a bit different. Obviously, they've got things in common, but overall, there's a lot different with it. So Stephen King said in an interview that Shelley Duvall's Wendy is quote unquote, one of the most misogynistic characters ever put on film. She's basically there just to scream and be stupid. And that's not the woman I wrote about. More than simply a bad character, he believes she is a poor representation. In the book, Shelley Duvall's a quite a bit of a different character. She's more independent and, and, and strong, I guess I would say. <clears throat> yeah, I, yeah, this I, is... I, I've actually, I've read the book too. I was first saw the movie and then was intrigued. I was actually into Stephen King books in junior high a lot. So uh, yeah, it's a complete different character. 
Yeah, this is an example of uh, Stephen King holding a grudge because Kubrick changed so much of the source material. He's kind of come down off of this stance, sort of, over the years. Well, but, he's, he's, uh, happy. I, he's kind of happy because he's in the minority at this point. Yeah, and you know, I do want to. I do want to disagree with Sai uh, King and say that um, I don't find her to be a a weak character even in the film, and we'll touch on all that later. But uh, I don't agree with him. Okay. Uh, another thing to add too. Besides thinking the book was sloppy, Kubrick wanted to distill the story down to simplify into the elements what he thought was to make the best movie. For him, he thought it was a man becoming insane. Not the backstories, not the anticlimactic ending. Uh, so Kubrick made paint changes to ensure the final chase through the hotel was memorable and visual, visual or, or visceral, sorry, uh, and visual. Um, he didn't think the wife needed to kill the husband. He thought the endless pursuit should kill him. So the greatest quote, there is no redemption, only darkness. It's fucking cosmic, son. It is. Just and it, it's, it's quite a bit different. We'll touch on this more in the end, but that, that chase scene pretty much, it, it, it perfectly summed up the movie because in the book, there was no, there was no maze. So there, there was quite a bit that was changed. And, and obviously, being a writer, and especially one of Stephen King's stature, it, it's understandable where at first he comes off the way he did, just because, I mean, it was a perversion of his work, really. It was not what he intended. Obviously, as Bisbee said, he didn't come down on that. But you can imagine seeing your movie, your, your book put to film and not – just just a distorted of a figure of what it was obviously that's going to perturb him a little bit yeah. yeah kubrick even shot down an adaptation of the script that king had wrote himself so king was probably kind of butthurt about that yes yeah that that's that was that was the next thing i was gonna say is is and, and the funny thing is, is i believe this book was written in what 77 79 or no the, the no, book no uh no, you're right. The the book was 77, I want to say. No, I, I, well, I mean, the inspiration was in 69. Okay. So I'm not actually sure when the book came out. I, I think, I think, yeah, I think the book was written in 76 or 77. It was a fairly quick turnaround for the movie. But King did, like Tibu said, he wrote a screenplay for it. And the, the best part it, was... It, was, it didn't come out in 77. What's that? I'm sorry to interrupt. It, it it did. It was published in 1977. Yep. Yep. So it almost makes me laugh that Kubrick was like, he, he probably just took that screenplay and used it as toilet paper for the fucking year and a half it took to film the movie. It was, it was, it was great. In yeah. the mob, he refused to read it. He's like, oh, that's fine, Stephen. Yep. I've got now. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Damn, he big time Stephen King, dude. Yep. Yep. We touched on this, but again, real quickly, in the novel, the characters of Wendy were quite a bit different. So in the novel, Wendy is a smart, independent blonde. In the film, she is Shelley Duvall's mousy doormat. In, in the book, there's no hedge maze, as we said, but there's animals which move constantly in the novel. The Overlook Hotel wants Danny for his power, but in the film, the hotel has no power at all, only a sort of shining, which affects the whole Torrance family, even though Danny is the only one to know about that. And to expand a little bit further, in the novel, the book tries to go after Danny, 
and it transitions into Jack. Um, so obviously there's a little bit of a difference, but there's also a dichotomy to be spoken of as well between the book and the movie in that respect. Yeah, I think, I, I think it comes down to Stanley. He needs to boil it down. It needs to be translated to screen and ultimately Stanley's vision was what he knew what was going to work. I mean, this guy was already maybe nine films in, uh, maybe seven films in. Uh, but yeah, it, it clearly he had a, he had a system. What rang true was another thing that Stanley had said is when you read a book, it's, it's not necessarily the, the author's story that sticks with you. It's that theater of the mind. So it's the feeling that you got from reading the book. That's what he wanted to translate to uh, the screen. I, I also want to give him props as a filmmaker for realizing he didn't have the budget to make hedge animals. So instead, he recreated that entire concept into something that the film, I'm not going to say it hinges on it, but goddamn, is the hedge maze fucking important in this film. It is. And there's one thing I want to touch on is the fact that there is a big difference when it comes to movie adaptations of novels. Very, very rarely do you have one that's considered quote-unquote good especially when you have a diehard fan of the novel, because it's impossible to turn a 500, 900 page novel into an hour and a half or two hour movie. So part of this whole creation of Kubrick's Shining, he, I mean, there's no, there's no arguing the fact that he was a genius, 200 level IQ. He, he, probably realize this and as far as i know this is his first real adaptation from novel to film is that correct uh clockwork Orange no. too and that author yeah. not happy with it okay you're right that was yeah that was an obvious one there as well but and i, I want to throw in that 2001 was a collaboration between an yes, author and a film yep, that's that was a little bit different yep that was just practice for the moon landing fate i'm just <laughs> kidding we'll get into that <laughs> But no, I, you know, as far as it was genius, as far as what he did, because you're not going to please everyone. So he did, I guess the next natural thing was if you're not going to try to do the book adaptation, 100%, you know, for example, we can use another Stephen King movie in, oh God bless it. What's uh, Gerald's game. Uh, that was actually considered a fantastic adaptation from film to movie this one is one that it's a little bit of a different story, which would make it a lot more difficult to adapt. So what Kubrick did was, is he made something that would make sense going from novel to movie and the changes he made, just like busy B had said, were, were something that's necessary. The, and we're going to get into the initial reaction of this movie. And this was not, you know, just like a lot of cult movies out there, this was not overwhelmingly accepted, especially with those that were a fan of the book that wanted to go and see this movie because it was vastly, vastly different. So, you know, I don't want to drag on any more about that unless you guys have anything you want to add. Next thing I want to mention, and, and probably the biggest thing that is the difference between the book and the movie, is who opens the door question of whether or not we're dealing with traditional cinematic supernatural is answered in the scene where Jack is released from the freezer, uh, evidently by the ghost of Grady, the former caretaker. 
Uh, in the novel, we see the ghostly Grady leaves a drink and a mallet for him outside the door, while in the film, opening of the door is deliberately ambiguous. He's, you know, a ghost voice talking to him about uh, basically correcting, and if I open this, you'll finish the job. Corrected him, sir. Yeah, is this, is, is this um, an example here of uh, one of those weird theories? Because you can look at this from a bunch of different ways. Supposedly, there was a door hidden behind some of the uh, shelves of food that were stored in the storeroom. But we are deliberately shown later that the actual door that Wendy locked is open. So he did either open it or he came out of it. There, yeah, there, there, even this scene alone is like, how do you interpret it, man? I love this about this movie. And the research led, us, led me and I'm sure all of us down many rabbit holes. It, it, gets, it gets out of hand. Maybe one thing we should have prefaced before getting into this is the fact that this movie, I mean, we're going to create a mountain here of movies that were left for interpretation. And at the, the king of the mountain is The Shining. That is number one. We've talked on the show about many other movies. One of my favorites, including The Void, being left for interpretation. This one is at the top of the mountain because to his death in, I think it was 2000, there was, it's not like he had a will or he had some kind of audio or visual log that he was like, this is what it meant. He, to his deathbed, at the age of 76, unexpectedly from a heart attack, left it open to interpretation. You never know. Maybe he put something that was like, in the year 2050, he leaves this. <laughs> but I think that that is, I mean, this movie is a darling, if I can use that term, in the fact that that is where a lot of this movie's foundation is built upon, is these crazy fans, crazy theories, the amount of energy and time that people like us put in, all these YouTubers and everyone else that goes through and picks us apart with a fine tooth comb as well. We'll get into the more of that later as well, but it, the interpretations and theories of this movie make it so much more fascinating on top of the fact that it's, it's, it's a perfect movie anyways. Okay, so we're dipping our toes a little bit into the casting part, but this is important to note Again, King versus Kubrick. He was, we're, we're, again, we're going to focus mostly on the Kubrick film, but we'd be remiss to not mention King's adaptation of this in 1990, I believe, and his thoughts and ideas and where he wanted the movie to go. So he had his own idea as far as actors he wanted to play, but again, if we're directing it to King versus Kubrick, the casting of Jack Nicholson was, well, the casting of, of Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson, obviously King was, you know, quote unquote, butthurt with this. But King said, and I quote, I'm a little afraid of Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance in the context because he is not an ordinary man. So far as I know, he's never played an ordinary man. And I'm not sure he can. I would have rather seen Michael Moriarty, who is a friend of the show because we just recently talked about him in The Stuff, or Martin Sheen portrayed Torrance. But these actors are not supposed to be quote-unquote bankable. Hollywood loves that word. Shelley Duvall, as, in, as Wendy, for example, is an example of absolutely grotesque casting. So there was almost a war of words between these two with this movie. 
at, at one point. King was quote or has been known to write that role as John Voight. I, I thought that was interesting um, during that time. Um, yeah, Jack was bankable. He was he was the Hollywood darling of that time. And I, I think it was a instant cast too. Kubrick, however, was uninterested in King's version of the script, as we had said before, preferring to start fresh. Of the book, he said, I found it very compulsive reading, and I thought the plot ideas and the structure were much more imaginative than anything I've ever read in the genre. And as his, was his habit, he brought in a collaborator, in this case, the American novelist Diane Johnson, who we talked about that did help him pen the script for the movie. And he developed the first in a number of treatments, constantly rewriting the script. This was actually pretty interesting because the script was originally on regular white paper and they had colors. So they would have, I want to say there was like pink and then green and then blue. So they would make sure that each actor had the correct. So, you know, if for example, Jack Nicholson had the blue script and Shelley Duvall had the pink script. Well, that's not the updated script. In between takes in their time off, that would be Stanley Kubrick. He'd be sitting there on his typewriter rewriting the script. And we're probably gonna to touch on this in a minute here, but this movie was also shot in sequence, which is pretty rare because it's a lot more difficult uh, shooting a movie in sequence means that it's shot in the order that you see it. And most movies are not shot that way. They're shot in the order that makes sense. So, for example, if you have a movie where, you know, let's just say like, a, I don't even know, like, like, a, like, a, like a bank robber movie and they've got their home base set up and there's multiple times in the home base, they'll shoot all the scenes in the home base at once and then they'll shoot all the scenes in the, in the bank at once as well. So this was not done. It made it a lot more difficult. But... Part of the reason for this was because the script was ever evolving. So, you know, the script that was initially written was changed multiple, multiple times throughout. Constantly rewriting the script, even throughout the shooting, he was adamant that, quote unquote, a story of the supernatural cannot be taken apart and analyzed too closely. The ultimate test of its rationale is whether it is good enough to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. If you submit it to a completely logical and detailed analysis, it will eventually appear absurd. Makes sense uh, that he would do that because he, the, the way the movie had it lined up to even the dull parts seemed very suspenseful. And I'm sure that there was dialogue to go along to help move the, the movie forward, but he chose to Hey, this is the scene where we're just going to have the dull moments seem super suspenseful and then the dialogue would change accordingly to that. Fun fact on this too is even though Stephen King, you know, they bashed heads and they, you know, he had his issues with it. He has a cameo in the movie. He's the conductor in the ballroom during the party scene, barely even recognizable, but he's the guy moving the wands and, um, conducting the band which the irony of that just puts a smile on my face now because he probably had no idea stanley kubrick had no idea at that point in the movie either just because it was so ever-changing but that that was pretty great 
the film also painted an overly unfavorable portrait of the failed alcoholic writer straying from King's optimism and faith in simple folk. Yeah, I think that's the best uh, thing that I think really got King's chip on that was you're taking a character that is basically me and now you're turning him into an alcoholic, probably a sexual abuser, child abuser, uh, and putting him in the worst light where King is, you just bastardized my book. So yeah, he was severely butthurt by that. I mean, taking taking that in fact. The last thing- I never knew that Stephen King had a cameo in this film until doing research uh, this go round, and I, I, yeah, for as much as they butted heads, I'm hoping that King himself can see the film. And I, I've never seen a quote about this, but I hope that King at least sees the film as a good film, regardless. And I know it's hard for him, especially as the original author, to separate himself. But whether or not I hope he does, yeah, whether or not what you read, I, I can't imagine at this point in his life after the amount of movies he's seen, his failed Shining adaptation, his failed adaptation of, um, what was the semi-truck movie? Uh, <laughs> Maximum Overdrive? <laughs> Maximum Overdrive. That he's was not a failure. appreciation for this. That, that at the very failure. least. At the that is not a failure. <laughs> no, well, yes and no. But if you put those two movies next to each other. Oh, well, yeah. You know Again, what I'm saying? Okay. Yeah, the one this thing is I the mountain of was, motherfucking. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. The budget. the budget. Did you guys do any research on the budget? Any guesses of what the budget was? I, I don't know, man. I don't know what a movie like this would have went for. I know that since Kubrick was able to shoot it in order the way he wanted, I, that, that's always a budgetary constraint. You have to just plan according to whatever you can schedule, and the producers got to line all that shit up. But considering it's Kubrick at this point in his career, for 1980 to get Jack Nicholson, I'm gonna throw out 20. I'm gonna throw out 30 million dollars. 30 million. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it was. I think it was a little bit more, but he also actually it was less. Really? Yes. So it was initially projected as a $15 million budget, but mm. this movie famously was many, many, many months after uh, the projected shooting schedule, if you will. Yep. So the crazy thing was, is, is it was initially a $15 million budget, and these numbers are hard to come by, but... The research I've done was that it was initially supposed to be 15 and ended up being 19, but it could very well have been more. The reason for that was that this was supposed to be a six month shooting budget and it went on for well over a year. And there was like Raiders of the Lost Ark, for example. And there was another one. uh, What was the one with um, Marlon Brando? Uh, that was the Island of Dr. Moreau. No, 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 no. That was <laughs> you're, look, you're 10 years newer. There is a, there is two movies that were having to get pushed on their production because this movie went for so long, but no, it, it, and that's a pretty healthy budget for back in 1980 mm-hmm. as well too. Uh, the crazy thing is, is, is the, the main, I guess I would say the, the, Oh gosh, bless it. It slips my mind right now. 
the main camera guy, Scott, Scott Baker, I think his name was, cinematographer. He was originally hired on at six months, and he was supposed to start shooting Rocky II after six months, and they gave him an initially low wage, but he took it because he wanted to work with Kubrick, yeah. but then he said, well, after six months, um, you're going to have to go with my normal American wage, and this movie was shot in England. Yep. And after six months, he was flying back and forth. If you can imagine this, every other week, he was taking a flight back to England to do the shooting on this because he was doing one week with Rocky two, one week with The Shining, going back and forth. So this, the, the budget of this movie, it's very hard to figure out exactly what it was because there's so many set pieces that were designed. It, it, it was, yeah, it, it, it's, it's fascinating. And it's also mind-boggling what, what went into this. That's insane that that guy was shooting two, in my opinion, of the best fucking movies of all time, back like on top of each other. That's awesome. Yes. Yeah. I think, and that's where Kubrick commanded, you know, I at Final Cut, I have complete say over every aspect in this film. I mean, this guy was such a detail-orientated guy. And that's where every, all these you know so much fandom to this is every little piece every little object in this movie you know 500 pieces of art people are breaking this down there was meaning to every single scene we're coming from a young jewish photographer out of new york had a talented eye genius at chess iq level beyond and to now be at the height of his career fuck it, I'm going over budget and I'm going years over, you know, contract. Yep. Funny little piece of information I have for you. So as we'd said before, Stanley Kubrick was known as a genius. He had a 200 IQ. So Scatman, I forget the character's name. You'll have to forgive me. Scatman Crothers, Dick Holleran's buddy that he rents the snowcat from. Do you remember him? He's a Rocky. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. He's, he's, he's a, yeah. Yep. He's yes. Yes. He's yeah. He's the, the trainer, Rocky. Anyways, in real life, that guy is actually very good at chess. So Kubrick prided himself on chess, and even though that scene took what fifteen to twenty seconds, and it, you know, obviously it's a Kubrick movie, so he was he was there for weeks doing there's just that one scene. They played chess during the days. He beat Kubrick once during chess in between one of their one of their uh you know takes or whatever it was and when he won like the whole set and everyone like gave him a standing ovation and that bothered kubrick to no end and they say that that had an effect on certain parts of the the movie that were filmed because that you know guy that had a 30 second scene in in the shining beat kubrick once in chess out of like 40 games so yeah yeah Crazy. That's awesome. Yep, yep. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> okay, the inspiration of the film. So Kubrick wanted to create his own horror movie, and in doing so, he found inspiration wherever he could, such as with David Lynch's debut film, Eraserhead, which our hardcore fans are going to be familiar with. Still, that wasn't the strangest thing that actually inspired him. Yeah, uh, Omnibus, the uh, uh, British television show that aired from 1952 to 1961, uh, live programming, 
uh, aimed at educating its audience. Um, its programming was diverse and included uh, interviews with famous people, performances, and original work from playwrights and authors. However, there was one episode in particular that inspired Kubrick. It featured a story by a novelist and sto uh, short story writer, Stephen Crane. Steve, I, I'll just continue on. Yep. Stephen Crane is best known for his novel, The Red Badge of Courage, a war story and sometimes read in schools. I know I did read it. Uh, nevertheless, one of his lesser known works was adapted on an episode of Omnibus, a short story called The Blue Hotel. In it, a couple of men are playing poker. One man is convinced his opponent is cheating, kills the other. Besides, uh, because he comes across because he comes across jumpy and paranoid, the audience thinks he's, the, he's wrong and he has killed an innocent man. But it turns out at the end, he was being cheated. I love that Kubrick got inspiration from like, from a, uh, like an anthology, well, not anthology show, but it's like, I don't know, man, Twilight Zone-ish, like sort of inspiration. I want to yeah. check out the show yeah. Omnibus. I, I really yeah. dig that. He was like, like you said, he was crafting a horror story idea for years and years, and it, I expect nothing less from a genius like Kubrick. I mean, he just found the right source material to finally translate all of the inspiration that he had gathered beforehand. Right, and that's where the genius comes in. Is it's it's the source material. It's almost like it's almost two separate entities. If you took Kubrick out of the picture there's a hundred percent chance that this movie would have been adap adapted to film. The difference is what would we have seen? We would have seen some, some version closer to Kings and we would not be, we would not be sitting here talking about the genius, which is Kubrick's a shining. So it's, 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 it's interesting when you think about it, you know, after all the research I've done the last couple months watching the movie, four, probably five, five times, I think, in its entirety with commentaries and whatnot, just trying to figure out, like, how do you put this to paper? We've talked about it before on the show. It's one thing about, you know, honing in your ideas in your head and putting them to film, but it's another taking source material and doing what Kubrick did in all of the, the things he would do purposely or subconsciously possibly with the hidden meanings. I mean, I'm, I'm close to getting off on a side tangent that we're going to cover here <laughs> in a minute. So I'm going to just wrap it up with that. But yeah, I think the other thing to, to note is that Kubrick was an, an expat. He left the United States. He spent the rest of his life in England. He was, definitely inspired by you know london culture you know um and the other thing to add too would was the fact that he at, at this point he tackled uh, a new genre and i think there's only a couple handful of back, uh, directors that actually can take on a role like that and you know going dramatic uh his black satire in some of his other movies like, um, you know, uh, Dr. Strangelove, you look at that and then to to such a mountainous thing to tackle. Um, but from, you know, 77 to 1980, a lot of good horror movies came out. A lot of just defining moments in that genre. 
happened. And I don't know if he got in on that. He was also a man that was very spurned by crap. I can't do this Napoleon movie now that, you know, his, 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 his opus taken away from him. Multiple movies throughout his career just scrapped stuff that he spent, you know, this is a six year break between one of his movies. And now he's, he's tackling, you know, a horror genre, which is quite amazing. Every genre that Kubrick touched, he made a masterpiece in, in my opinion. And I, I do, I do want to say, just on the note of Kubrick, I think he achieved some elements of horror prior to this film in 2001, but you know, not not full on enough to call it a horror movie, horror adjacent, I'd say. But damn, man, to, to touch any genre, whether it be war or something more surreal like A Clockwork Orange or this horror film, The Shining. Most notable for me, sorry, Tibu, go ahead. Well, just to say, uh, I am being redundant. He made masterpieces in everything he touched, and this is no exception. Most notable for me is the fact that you rarely see a director go from some sort of genre and end up in horror. Usually it's the other way around. Usually you have directors in horror that cut their teeth and then they garner enough attention to move into what they want. So for him to come into the horror genre and produce what he did is, 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 is just amazing because I mean, let's face it, horror genres, the, the genre that gets, you know, snuffed the most when it comes to awards, recommendations, um, you know, recognition, whatnot. So he really kind of flipped the script on that. And, and this has been done since then as well. But the flip side of that is, is you have these people that try to say that they're not making a horror film. They're making a dark drama or whatever. So for him to embrace it like he did, um, you know, it, it's impressive. And that, that makes me just that much more excited to talk about this movie and that much more excited to love a movie like this. Mm. Okay, casting of this movie. This is going to produce some fun conversations here. So the role of Jack, so obviously we know Michael Moriarty, Martin Sheen were who Stephen King had in mind mm -hmm. for this. The role of Jack considered was Robert De Niro, Robin Williams, and Harrison Ford. They were all considered. Why Nicholson? You'll see, in quotes, You'll see everything about Jack is perfect for this role. His expression, even the way he walks, he doesn't need anything extra to play this part. It's already there inside of him. This right here is very pivotal and important because with this movie here, there wasn't a single scene in this movie that was done in one take. If there was a scene that was done in one day, that was considered just you know crazy fast for Kubrick. Most of the scenes in the movie took not only days but weeks to do. And the way that he shot it, and there was a quote from, I believe it was Jack Nicholson, it said something like, the first five to 10 takes, the characters would do what they were trained to do. It would be their standard, procedural acting or whatnot. Then after that, 
they would become neutral because they were essentially just, you know, they, they were getting drained with the whole thing. So then after about 20 to 30 plus takes, then that's when the characters would start getting crazy with their expressions. They would be doing things that were unnatural in their acting ability. And those were the scenes that Kubrick would take. It would be the scenes that, you know, you get, you know, Dick Halloran, for example, after 80 some, uh, 80 some, some takes crying, breaking down, being like, what do you want from me? Those are what Kubrick would eventually take. So Jack Nicholson, what King said was partly true in the fact that he is just a crazy man. There's not a single movie he's been in to this day. I think he stopped acting in 2010, but every movie he's been in was just crazy over the top. You know, he's just the expressions he makes. But the argument for that is that he was perfect for this movie. That is what made Jack Torrance. And I cannot imagine, especially Michael Moriarty. When I read that, I literally just started to laugh. I was in my work truck in between appointments and I read that and I just bust out laughing and I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? I'm sitting in my truck by myself laughing out loud because fans of the show probably heard our stuff episode. And I thought that he was just, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. He sucked in that. I did not like his performance in the stuff. And for him being in this movie, it would have just, I, I cannot imagine. Yeah, it's funny you start seeing those deep fake videos now. I really like the one with uh, Jim Carrey as Jack Torrance. And that I could see. Maybe, yeah. maybe Jim Carrey 2021. Yeah. Not okay. Jim Carrey 98. Yeah, not, ru- yeah, not Rubber Face. Or, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think a, a perfect casting. I, I think that in, in that quote's attributed to Stanley's Stanley talking to his assistant and the assistant had reservations about you know why are you casting Jack like let's you know you need to you know this is the guy this is the it guy in Hollywood why you know why are you doing you know you should do this and he just flat out said he's like the guy does everything yes exactly what you uh you know what you need out of out of him fuck Michael Moriarty listen man okay Mo Rutherford is the fucking man I don't care what you say now, would he have been better for this role? Hell to the no. No. Mo Rutherford is a different beast altogether than Jack Torrance. So Jack Nicholson is perfect for this role. And there's scenes where he is barreling down hallways and hedge mazes where if you pause the film at any frame, yeah. you see the devil in his face, man. Every you see frame. the fucking devil. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're probably going to cover this when we go through the scene by scene, but my all-time favorite framing of the shot of this movie is one second you see Wendy and Danny walking through the maze, and the next second you see Jack in his green sweater looking out the window, fucking crazed eyes. (laughs) It's actually, yeah, and I'll touch on it. That's an actual... Uh, it's, it's a Kubrick. Kubrick stare. It's a Kubrick stare. Yes, yes, you're right, you're right. Anyways, we won't go any further on that. Well, yeah, I was going to say, Alex, anyone? <laughs> yeah. Casting-wise, and this always intrigued me, like, why Wendy? Who, what, 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 
what was the reasoning for casting Duvall? So uh, at the time, uh, there was a, a movie that came out and she actually um, run, uh, she won, a, uh, I'll get to it, but there was a movie that came out, it was three women, uh, Duvall, she won Best Actress at the Cannes Film Festival. There's a graphic scene where she uh, uh, was forced to deliver a stillborn baby. Such a, such a strong scene. There was a raw, unnerving horror to it. It convinced Kubrick to cast Duvall as the wife in his adaptation to the Stephen King novel. She got an offer call from Kubrick himself, and he said to her, uh, you're great at crying. And she said she never met him. There was no strip, script. He sent her a copy of King's novel and told her to read it. So behind that, she at the time was dating and living with Paul Simon. Uh, so she's reading the novel, you know, whatever, living the, the best life in New York, you know, folk singer, boyfriend. She's probably in a nice long sweater reading the book. Paul sneaks into the apartment, knows that she's got this, uh, you know, horror movie thing that he's working on. And she, uh, he jumps in and scares her. And uh, I think that led to their breakup. She was like, <laughs> she's like so pissed off. And she's just like so into this movie, this, this book and trying to get in character. But hello, darkness, my old friend. I'm here to scare the shit out of you again. Oh, Simon and Garfunkel, some gems in that, I'll tell you what. <laughs> yeah, bud. Yes, buddy. Um, yeah, the, I want to say Go ahead, about TV. Wendy. Yeah, Shelley Duvall, man. This just, we're going to talk about it, but this performance for me is top notch. I believe the fear. Yes, she is, she is doe eyed. She is a little bit mousy in a lot of scenes, but. Again, I'm going to get to it later where, why I think she's not as weak of a character as has been uh, criticized or people have, people have talked about, at least in my opinion. So Shelley Duvall knocks it out the park just like Jack Nicholson, man. Uh, I, I love these leads in this film. I'm not sure if you guys have notes on this, but I don't want this to get overlooked. But the fact, the amount of torment she had to go through. And oh, Yeah. She, I mean, she literally spent six months where she had to cry every day. I, I, I was in my research. I saw a great documentary done by Vivian Kubrick, who is Stanley Kubrick's daughter, was talking about this, and she was talking with Shelley Duvall. And the hardest thing was Shelley Duvall would get up, she'd have to go and act, and oh look, I got to cry again. She said that it got to the point where she would wake up and she would, they'd have to put, was it glycerin or what the hell is that crap on her face to make it look like she's crying? She literally had no tears left. Her, her tear have, ducts were dried up, bro. Yeah, and she was getting irritated and she had rashes. She said the worst was is she'd get up and she'd be like, I have to cry again. And you can imagine an actress having to, you know, especially when you get into a method actor or actress when you have to get yourself into that mind frame you know there's certain people that have to watch certain things they have to think of certain things they have to do certain things to get them in the mindset you can imagine of six months every single fucking day you have to get up and you have to make yourself be hysterical or cry 
And she said that she would get up in the mornings and she'd be like, I physically could not cry anymore. But then I would think of the fact that I have to cry all day today. And she'd say, I would start crying. Yeah. <laughs> I would start crying because I'd have to cry all day. I mean, it's, it's that, that, what that would do to your head, I, I cannot imagine. And to elaborate a little bit farther on that was the fact that in that same notion, she was saying the fact that she was jealous because, you know, Jack Nicholson had once said that the average actor meets more people in one year or celebrity, I should say the average celebrity meets more people in one year than a normal person does in their entire lifetime. Jack Nicholson at this time, even though it was only 1980 and he was early in his career, he was a celebrity. There's people coming to visit him all the time on the sets. And Shelley Duvall would be, she'd get jealous. She would admit openly that she was jealous. And there'd be times where she, I mean, dare I say she was acting where she would be overly stressed and whatnot on the job. And she would have assistants running to her to put pillows and blankets and, Oh, here, lay down for a minute in the, in the dry storage, for example, when they're shooting the scene with Dick Hollerin and Danny Lloyd. So there's, there's so many different facets of this. The whole thing is just fascinating when you, you get into it. What about, what about Kubrick? Um, like well first of all he would demand that of his actors as well like the patience to do the multiple takes and get into that i i don't know about what their method is personally for them but his method as a director she, she su suffered torment for sure because he would also i don't know if antagonize is the is the right word and i also don't know if this was played up for the making of that they were doing at the time mm -hmm. i've heard that that could be the case that stanley kind of played up the insane director role but it all particularly happened with Shelley Duvall you guys have any thoughts on that like do you think Kubrick was kind of cruel to her to her to get a performance out of her and well, then what do you think about that as far as that yeah she admitted that they had a good relationship overall but she also yeah. said that there were certain things he would do that would piss her off but then she said looking back at it she would know why she would be like, yeah, he would do this to get the best performance out of me, whether it was, you know, anger or fear or trepidation or whatever. But I mean, he, he did kind of pick on her. Um, there was certain things that he would do. You know, there was one scene in particular where it was towards the end of the movie when she had the knife and she's supposed to go outside into the snowstorm and the machines they had, I mean, the, the crazy thing is this is before environmental thoughts were involved because they were using basically styrofoam, like salt, formaldehyde yeah. and styrofoam. Yes. Yep. All the snow was salt, almost, almost <laughs> a thousand tons of salt, but a lot of the snow or all, I should say, let me go back. All the snow you saw falling was styrofoam. And the machines that made it were so loud that she could not hear. And in the documentary, this is probably what TV was saying a little bit as well. You hear Stanley Kubrick go up to her and he kind of lays into her a little bit. Like he was like, what the fuck? He's like, we spent all this time and money getting all this shit right. We had to wait for the wind. And I fucking said, go. And you didn't come out. And she's like, well, I couldn't hear anything. So there's definitely you know, certain things he did that 
probably were, well, I mean, let's face it, it was Stanley Kubrick, purposely done to instill certain emotions out of his actors. Yeah, he's notorious for going, and it's, you can find so much on this, how, how he supposedly tormented her, but he was known to go up to the, uh, the staff and the grips and everyone working on set and said, don't feel sorry for her. This isn't your, this isn't something for you to feel sorry about. Right. And, you know, uh, another thing to note, and I'm sure we'll bring it up later in some notes or something, but uh, he broke the world record for the amount of takes with one of her scenes. It was 100, 127 takes. Jeez. So another thing to note on him is he wouldn't print anything until 35 takes. So if you can imagine doing something 35 times and then knowing that, okay, now we're now we're now we're really starting to to get to the meat of the shoe here. Imagine yeah. if he did something at two hundred and thirty-seven takes just for this movie. That motherfucker. If he would have. <laughs> Again, the I think at that point this is this is Stanley Kubrick. You signed on for it. You're gonna get it. Yep. You're gonna you're gonna get the whole genius. The <laughs> that is okay danny torrance let's talk about the casting of danny lloyd so in his search to find the right actor to play danny uh, stanley kubrick sent out a husband and wife team of leon and kirstie vitale to chicago denver and cincinnati to create an inventory or an interview pool of thousands and thousands of boys over at least a six-month period. The city were chosen since Kubrick was looking for a boy with an accent that fell in between Jack Nicholson's and Shelley Duvall's speech patterns. Danny Lloyd, who ended up playing Danny Torrance, which I found kind of ironic because you had yeah. Danny Lloyd play Danny Torrance, you had Jack Nicholson play Jack Torrance, and Shelley, Wendy, you know. Yep, Shelley, Wendy. It's just weird because any other director, you would start saying there's coincidences with things, but Stanley Kubrick was known as a perfectionist. He was known as a guy, well, obviously, we just got done talking about all the takes he, he, he does before he gets a shot. So everything is intentional. But anyways, um, Danny Lloyd played Danny Torrance. The, the, the crazy thing is, though, that he had no idea he was playing a part in a horror movie. Uh, according to Lloyd's acting coach, during a casting call, the five-year-old, so at the time when he was cast, he was five, when he was filming, he was six. And they filmed so long, he was turning seven years old by the end of this. This is how long this movie took here. Yeah, it, it's crazy. But um, during the casting call, Danny Lloyd came up with the idea to hold his finger up when he was talking as Tony. So now you can partially blame the toddler uh, for your nightmares instead of Kubrick when he was using Tony. So I thought that was genius. And for what it's worth, he had never acted in a movie prior. He starred in one TV made for TV movie afterwards. And that was it. He hung it up. Now he is in a, he's a, he's an assistant professor in, I want to say it was like Cincinnati, Ohio um, he's like a biology professor. I mean, he's, is, he's as normal as they get. 
Besides the fact that he played Danny Torrance in one of the best movies ever made, and he will sometimes go to horror cons or, or film cons or whatnot as well. So <laughs> I love that guy. I mean, that was it's just a great role. Um, you have like that's good. That's that's a Man, good beer. This beer that Brent brought, holy the hazier things is legit. Yeah. That Damn. that one is yeah, I was happy they came back out right here with that. <clears throat> yeah, but if you look at child horror actors, actors, actresses, whatever, there, there's a handful that come to mind, you know, poltergeist. I mean, Danny's right up there. That, the, the roles and the fact that he didn't know it was a horror movie, and I don't think he even saw this movie until he 17 was 17 years old. 17 years old before he actually saw the movie. You know, the way that he, everything about that, he, you know, the shaking and the, uh, you know, the abused look where he's just staring off. Um, I felt the the dialogue that he had, it was very adult too. Like the way he would just talk to, it was just, just so well done. And I wonder how much they had to coach him. And I know I've seen some behind the scenes stuff of The Shining where, you know, Stanley really took a liking to him. I mean, he, he really sheltered this kid. It was a completely different experience for Danny compared to Shelly. It's like, hey, come sit on my lap. Let's watch, like, this last scene that you're in. Hey, come on, run to me. Run to me, Danny. You know, he was really coaching him yep. and getting the most out of him. But imagine not knowing that this was an actual just a, a familicide movie where you're like, your father, backstory is he probably abused you. Don't know, you know, take it up if it's sexually abused. Probably. But definitely, yeah. you know, abused you. Okay, now I need you to come into the scene and sit on his lap when he's going, uh, you know, right. he's having a mental break. I think there's not enough credit given to his acting coach, who he ended up spelling, spending about a year and a half with. And they become very good friends. And that, I think, really attributed. Because this, as far as... The, the craziest thing is, is that he had no experience. He had no movies. This was his first foray into the film genre, and it was it was perfect. I mean, there was not a single flaw he did. It was it was awesome. A lot of that can be attributed to Kubrick and the editing and whatnot, but it was done so well. And the, the I'm trying to think of the guy's name is I think it was Vitaly. His last name was Vitaly. Yeah. Yep was his acting coach, which is a oh, cool. solid name. Solid. Yeah, it's my son's name. So, But anyways, yeah, very well done. And it's, it's almost sad because it would have been interesting to see what he would have done if had he kept going in the direction of, of child acting, which, I mean, history proves that probably nothing good would have come out of it. <laughs> yeah, Haley. But yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> He, hey he man, don't compare to a chubby Haley Joel Alvin. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Listen, don't don't uh, don't discount the fucking lifestyle of uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Ooh. Danny Lloyd could have had a lot of fun if he had continued, <sighs> but for the character he plays in this film, I think I agree. Perfect, no flaws. I love it, man. Man, yeah, Stuart Ullman. That would be the uh, general manager of the hotel. We're getting down into the, the smaller parts here. Barry Nelson, one film wonder. He had a, a role in Airport 1970, but looking into, like, how was this guy cast? What was this? 
just kind of like a, you know, no nonsense guy. Maybe the nice guy act is what, uh, you know, Kubrick liked out of this. The one thing I think I noted with the casting of this, of Stuart Ullman's character, again, much bigger part or had a different role in the book. Yeah. Showed up a lot more, but Stuart Ullman, whatever he says in the movie to Jack or to whatever actually comes true. You know, he, he warned him of, you know, Hey, uh, the snow gets really bad. Uh, you know, the past caretaker <laughs> murdered his family. Uh, everything about this guy is just straight up like he's he's foreshadowing. And I think he's such a as you as you keep rewatching this movie, you want to want to find out, like I single in on this guy. I'm like, OK, is he trying to tell me something more in this movie? Is Stanley, you know, putting in something more? You know, the two outfits you see him in, the, you know, the, the closing day of the hotel, he's kind of wearing this 1980s, 70s kind of jive like leather jacket, like, hey, I'm cool, man. And, the, you know, uh, <laughs> to me, he's like, I just, I, I keep going back to that character. I'm like, there's something about him. And I think that's the genius of the, of the movie too, is that it's not necessarily what you're meant to focus in on. It's all the other small things. And so that's where it comes back to is, is like, why... Why Stuart Ullman? He's prophetic, man. He's very prophetic, and he's got a hard-on for Jack. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Dick Halloran, one of my favorites. Quote from Dick Halloran, The Shining was also the first film I've ever worked in where you didn't have a stand-in to set up a shot when the director's trying to get the lighting right. Stanley wants you there. He wants everything realistic which makes it harder to work. But didn't a stuntman double for Crothers when Halloran was really murdered with an ax by Jack Torrance? Quote, unquote. Oh, no, I did that myself. They had some kind of plastic bag filled with artificial blood attached to my chest. When we were getting crazy, uh, when we were getting ready to shoot the scene, I told Jack, no, look, old buddy, don't go crazy. But then I asked the special effects cat, are you sure that this axe won't go through this thing? He said, oh, don't worry about it, Scat Man. We'll take good care of you. I said, I certainly hope so, because I don't want Jack to overact, and I don't want you to underestimate your axe. Dick Halloran, so he was 70 years old when he was in this movie, so he was an older feller. He originally started out, he was a musician. He yep. was a musician in the 20s. In the 20s, he was a musician. So this guy had been through some shit. Again, to, to harken back to what I had said before, he was not a kid. He'd been in movies before. There's there's mm. plenty of movies before. There's no doubt. However, He was Hong Kong fooey, bro. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. He had never worked with the likes of a Stanley Kubrick. Not only <laughs> Stanley Kubrick, but a Stanley Kubrick. So again, to harken back to what I had said, after like 40 some takes on one, he broke down in tears and he quoted, what do you want from me, Mr. Kubrick? What do you want? Like he was just at his wits end. This is not what he had signed up to. But all in all afterwards, when asking about working with Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and especially Danny Lloyd, he broke down into tears and said it was the best time of his life. And he said they were beautiful people. So 
all in all, he had overall a good experience. The, the, the sad part is, though, is he died early. Like, I think he died before this movie reached its cult status. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I want to say he died in, like, 86, <clears throat> I think. Yeah. So, I mean, it was well after the movie had come out and whatnot, but it, it's kind of a sad deal in that he – I don't think he really was able to – understand the effect he had on you know the millions of people that turned this movie into just the cult status that we know it as yeah oh man like out of all the characters in this film scatman crothers motherfucking dick halloran that's the guy i'd want to hang out with uh yeah he, he kubrick had him crying like shelly duvall man that's fucked up he made that old ass man who had been through so much shit cry <laughs> it's bad yeah, he's he, hands down one of my favorite guys. Uh, best Hollywood name I can ever, you know. I mean, for what it's worth, I think his real name was Benjamin. I, yeah, uh, I think it's Sherman or something. Yeah, Benjamin Story, Sherman or something. Story behind that. Uh, he's in a recording studio and they're. They call me Scat Man. They're like, oh, all right. Why is that? He's like, I like to scat. Um, yeah, he's the man. Not poop. Yeah, not not a not a scat man, but he is scat man. Yeah, I just I, I and I think going back nostalgia purposes, first time I see this, going through the credits, what the hell is named Scat Man? Oh, I love this movie and more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, just um, his dialogue too was great. Like he's he's kind of you can get as deep as you want in this movie, but he kind of has that sort of like. Uh, uh, minstrel show type character like all right well i'll take you all righty there folks and you know kind yeah. of a uh you it's enough to make you kind of is he trying to like is he doing a parody of like somebody here but then um man he was he was he was good I, I yeah he turned he turns around and, and just blows you away with the serious tone that he can take as well but his inflections when speaking to a child, when he's uh, talking to Danny over the ice cream, I, he definitely had some chops in this movie too. Again, everybody in this movie, man, out of the park. So going on to just some smaller roles, we've got Delbert Grady. Uh, <laughs> played by Philip Stone. He was one of three actors, or one of two actors that was actually can say they've been in three Stanley Kubrick movies. So he was in Clockwork Orange, played Graham. Um, and then he was the Linden family lawyer in Barry Linden in 1975. Uh, Stone was discovered when Kubrick saw him perform in a David Story stage play. Not only, uh, again, yeah, he was one of one of two actors to say that he was in the um in Stan, uh in three stanley kubrick movies the other one is lloyd the bartender joe turkle again he was in the killing as tiny pass the glory as private arnaud lloyd the bartender again small role very memorable i would say it, it, it for me it seems like the way that the shots were set up you think it's a bigger role there's a yes. deeper meaning the way that you know Lloyd is portrayed in this this light behind this bar um, the the short answers you know that he gives him and the same with with Grady is 
you know, looking at him and, it, 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 you know, he's, he's just like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. And then it just shifts. And he's deep, he's mean, he's, you know, he, he's, it's a deeper meaning that these characters play. We're talking five minutes, not even five minutes of screen time on these guys. And it's just like lasting impressions. When I saw this movie, uh, I'm going to say film as a boy, I'm going to guess that I was probably eight or nine years old. I remember Delbert Grady. I remember Lloyd, the bartender. Again, Busy B, as he said, they were only on the screen for a hand, couple minutes total. Part of it is, is the way the movie was shot with the framing of the camera on. So you very rarely see both characters talking to each other. It's framed where you see, you know, Jack Torrance talking and then Wendy talking and then whatever. Same thing with Delbert, or not Delbert, uh, Lloyd the Bartender and uh jack torrance you see them talking that way they're only on the screen for a short period of time what's most impressive to me is how powerful those scenes are because those are the scenes people will remember they're going to remember lloyd the bartender and and delbert grady and i mean just just the iconic quotes that you get with them i mean how many times have we already said just today that during this tonight during this recording i corrected him sir or you know Lloyd the bartender. Oh, your credit's no good here, Mister Torres. Yeah, it comes from the house. You know, I mean, yeah, these guys are. Uh, and I, I've seen every Kubrick film. Uh, I, I recommend Pass the Glory to anyone. I think it's a really great war movie. It's just, it's, it's just a, a perfect, like very deep movie about the the. It's just a deep movie, um, but yeah, I do remember him in uh, uh, in those movies, black and white movies too. But yeah, it's just classic scenes, and I think they've all been parody too, and they've all been, you know, shown up in other you know pop culture roles too. This this movie is transcending. Yeah, I'll say they're impactful. Those two characters, Lloyd the bartender, is the mouthpiece of the hotel, and Jackson Nabler, and. Delbert Grady is the deal maker that dispatches a death dealer. You're right. He's the one that kind of pushes him over the edge, really. Yeah. So. <laughs> Your golden meets corrected. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. We are going to get into production. Yeah, 300 construction people were on the payroll before the film even started. Kind of a side note on that is it was a union job sort of thing. And before there were certain rules on how long they could work, Stanley was begging them to work Saturdays. But Jack uh, had such a good rapport with these, these workers that he'd say, hey, if we wrap on Friday nights, champagne on the set for everyone. So it was kind of this fun thing, like even though like Jack and Stanley had this awesome relationship, Jack was like, hey man, let's wrap this thing up. And hey, by, by the way, guys, I got cases of champagne if we want to get this. If we can wrap this on a Friday night, let's do it. So they would never sign off on working Saturdays. That's genius idea. Genius idea. And, and a lot of people forget that Jack Nicholson 
did star in a clockwork orange i mean him and stanley are, are bros before so i don't know if i said this before either but to piggyback off of busy b what he said that he said he was an expatriate stanley kubrick defect well defect is not the right word but he moved to england so if you guys ever watched the movie or the documentary that was done by his daughter she's got a hardcore english accent because his wife is english he moved reportedly to England because he was actually scared of the, uh, the, 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 the nuclear war that was potentially going to happen mm -hmm. between the U.S. and the Soviets. So that's, that's pretty crazy. And it's kind of ironic, too, when you consider the genius he was, that he was that scared of nuclear war. He moved his family into England. So. But, again, that birthed a couple of phenomenal movies and a clockwork orange and, and the shining and etc. So, yep. so when we go to Jack Nicholson, when he uses an ax to break into the bathroom, it took Kubrick three days to get the scene right. The scene right in the end, Nicholson chopped down 60 doors. So funny thing with that is Jack Nicholson was actually a volunteer firefighter. So he was actually pretty legit he was not like a you know a tom cruise la born whatever where he doesn't know anything in the real world i mean he again back in the day you know he was dare i say a man's man he knew how to handle equipment he knew how to handle an axe so when the 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 production department or the the set department made the doors they made them for a regular actor that would be able to break through the doors. Well, to their dismay, Jack Nicholson was just fucking crushing these doors a lot faster and more aggressively than they thought. And you can see in the movie too, he handles that ax like, yeah, he's done that before. So he, with the takes that it, you know, Mona takes, it takes to get the door or the scene right, he went through a lot of fucking doors. And the way he handles it acts professionally. So yeah, it took a it took a lot. One of another one of my favorite scenes, I could probably say this with every scene, but Wendy and Jack, the scene that what I say, I mean, if we were to put this movie on a uh I guess a fulcrum, it's gonna be the pivotal point is gonna be when Jack starts coming up the stairs at Wendy, that's when the movie does take that turn to, okay, it's getting real, it's getting violent. So Wendy swipes at Jack with the baseball bat. That scene alone took 127 takes, and that is the scene that Busy B talked about earlier that broke the world record. 127 takes, and, and that wasn't a short scene. That scene took, what, 30 to 45 seconds with them backing up the steps. Yeah. I mean, that's again, and you can just look at now that you've heard, if you didn't know this before, you can go back to watch that scene and you can see the crazy mannerisms that Jack does with him putting his hands out. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's fucking wild. It's, it's, it's brilliant, but it's wild as well. Yeah. I, to tag on that too. Um, Kubrick cut his teeth as a, a young photographer. And he was really known for these staircase scenes. If you look at some of his younger work, amazing photography that he was doing, these up shots of like stairways looking down at stairways, 
So to me, I, I, you know, to have that be like he had to have this stairway scene perfect, that's just who he is. He's a stair man. To, to note, and I think this is probably the one thing that really just intrigues me the most as we keep researching, is that the, the steady cam in the advent of technology that goes around Kubrick and what he does. And, and, and given credit, the guy has, he's like Ansel Adams. He was, you know, always a, a tech first guy and, you know, always embraced technology. But the steady cam, uh, Shining was one of the first half dozen films um, to use the steady cam. Uh, again, it's a stabilizing mount for a, a picture camera. The inventor of the Steadicam, Garrett Brown, heavily involved with the production. Uh, Brown has described his excitement for taking his first tour of the sets, offered further possibilities of the Steadicam. Uh, Kubrick personally aided in modifying the Steadicam's video transmission technology. Brown states his own abilities to operate the Steadicam were refined by working on Kubrick's film. For the film, Brown developed two-handed technique, which enabled him to maintain the camera at one height, while panning and tilting the camera. In addition to tracking shots from behind, the Steadicam enabled shooting in constricted rooms without flying out walls or backing out the camera into doors. Uh, one of the most talked about shots in the picture was the eerie tracking sequence, which the camera follows Danny as he pedals through high speed through the corridor after corridor in his big plastic uh, wheel tricycle. You hear the, the and then quiet. Yeah, when it hits so the carpet. Eerie. Yeah, so yes. Yeah, that's that's one of those that's iconic. Yeah, he, the and Stanley was like, well, why don't we just flip the camera? You know, everything's kind of held at the you know chest level where the the uh, I guess the operator view. Flip it the other way and run it closer to the level, and that also comes into play with the maze. The maze wasn't that tall. It wasn't, it wasn't a, you know, you're looking up at an eight foot, 10 foot wall. They're actually that maze, the way that was shot makes it look like, like it's a lot bigger, so, yeah. so much bigger. And again, it's, it's the, those, uh, the lens techniques that a genius photographer has. And I think that that's great that uh, Stanley, you know, was involved with that technology. Yeah. So, so Garrett Brown is the gentleman that I was, trying to refer to earlier that slipped my mind oh, so oh, okay. okay yeah he he yeah he was involved in a lot of well and to 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 just further expand on that the i don't think this movie would have been i don't know if i want to go as bold to say as iconic as it was but just with the steady cam shots that were done I mean, if we think about it, that scene where they're following Danny tracking through the hallways is iconic. I mean, there's if you were to break down this movie into a dozen iconic scenes, that's got to be in the top ten, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, would you guys agree? Absolutely. It's it's got to be. Also, when when uh, Shelley Duvall comes out and she's running after him, there's a great documentary documentary that shows them running after her. So yeah, that steady cam was instrumental i mean they really i mean they took that and ran with it even though yeah, opening shot you know with a, a you know glacier national park following yeah. the car along it's all steadicam stuff and then i mean it's you yeah. know amazing 
I want to chime in and say that the sound design when Danny's riding his tricycle, uh, like, like you guys said, I'm just, I'm, I'm floored by it. And to piggyback on the steady cam, not far off, uh, a year prior, Sam Raimi and a few buddies made a makeshift steady cam for the evil dead films. And that similar sound effect, uh, or at least the style of it is used in evil dead where from overhead we see ash walking through the cabin and beams are passing by and they make those sounds and i always i always think of that when i think of danny riding his his trike through the overlook it's i love that little nuance of the film it's perfect you know what tibu that's cosmic as fuck fuck yeah bud <laughs> okay so again one other thing that i just love and I noticed this the very first time I watched this. Well, I, I should say in preparation of this episode, before I got into the research, I noticed this and it, it, it implanted itself in my brain was with the whole all work and no play and make Jack a dull boy. The fact that I'm like, wait a second, this is before CGI. How many fucking pieces of paper were typed out for this. So Stanley Kubrick's personal secretary spent six months typing this out on 500 pieces of paper, all work and no play. We're gonna give her credit. Her name was Margaret Warrington. And not only did she have to type it out in English on 500 pieces of paper, she had to do it in different ways. So she had to do it as far as with you know, regular text and dialogue, description, it was different. But also, hey, this movie is going to be released in French and Italian and German. She had to do this like six times. Yeah. So that's like 3,500 pieces of paper. Uh, the story with her, too, is that she would sit on the outside of his office and she, she was like, hey, uh, Stanley's working on a horror movies he needs novels he, he he needs inspirations and she would <laughs> that pentagram is funky sorry we're gonna pause I, I i about choked on the last beer we drank <laughs> it is opening up a portal into some, yeah 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 y'all getting some satanic chaos over there we're gonna be chatting about the shining and i'm gonna come on the other side of the the dimension when we're chatting about fucking yeah, it's, doctor sleep after this beer. It's a mirror form. <laughs> yeah, she would, she would constantly hear the thump of novels hitting the hitting the trash can, jump, jump, jump. Because Stanley was was said if you know if the book didn't grip you within X amount of pages, just jump. So she just kept hearing these thunks, and then after a while, you know, it was like silent for a while, and he was reading The Shining. So he was you know inspired by that. I'm always amazed by these assistants and their takes on working with geniuses because, you know, it does take a lot behind that person. There's a whole army of people. And right. I, I always love those takes and to hear what they have to say. So kudos to Margaret on that. Uh, one of my favorites is, of course, the most iconic is the, uh, the twins' death scene. Just quick flashes in between that. Well, that shot of them lying in a pool of blood was one of the last to be filmed. There was only one set of signature blue dresses that they could wear. Drenching them in fake blood would to ruin them. Stanley had to take very carefully, plan out the, that scene. There was no room for retake. 
working against his usual multi-take instincts, Kubrick did in uh, did the take he wanted and produced one of the most memorable moments of film history. It 100% was, and I'm jumping the gun a little bit on the lasting effect that had, but I have to say that we talked about us on our 2019 show, I believe it was, Tibu, and the death scene of the two daughters in us was 100% recreated from the twist in uh, The Shining. So this right here is a very is a very iconic scene, and it has been recreated in popular popular film over the years. Yeah, I agree. It's just one of those that it, it, it almost it's it's like yeah, everybody knows this. So late in the production, Elstree Studios in London. Fire breaks out, destroys two sound stages. One of those sound stages housed sections of the the uh, fake Overlook Hotel. The blaze caused the filming to be halted until the sets could be rebuilt. Um, this is crazy, but behind the scenes on this, it wasn't all. They they literally rebuilt this entire front uh, facade of the of the Overlook in his studios in London. Uh, it's amazing work, but the, the fire breaks out. It kind of goes to, you know, one of those things where halt in production, you know, Stanley could focus in on other things. Looking back, you know, he told a BBC uh, interview, he was actually grateful for that forced break, gave him a chance to take a breather and, uh, during this intense production that he had. Uh, I think it's kind of fucked up that, in the novel the hotel burns to the ground (laughs) or that grady grady even mentions that like he is one of his daughters tried to burn the place down yeah yeah so if you we polled 100 people that had seen the movie and they were to say what was the most iconic scene of the movie what do you think would be number one it would be here's johnny for sure Here's Johnny. Okay. What, yeah. what about you, T or Busy B? I I think if you pulled a hundred, well, I think if you pulled five hundred people and said the mo- one of the you know the most iconic scenes in film history, uh, that one would probably probably pop up, you know, on the you're right the scale. You're right. Yeah, I think that yeah, absolutely. That's 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 the most iconic, you're right. iconic line. You're you're right. And that's not what I was going for, but you are right. And a side note on that, that was 100% ad-libbed, which mm-hmm. was was even more impressive. I guess what I was going for would be the blood coming out of the elevator scene. Like, when you think of the oh. Shining, there's only a couple things that I think of. And the blood coming out of the elevator scene is probably the one that's been the most recreated in pop culture, I guess, whether we're talking about, um, what was it? I think family guy did it. And, and there's mm. a handful of others as well, but that scene alone took one year to get that right of the blood pouring out of the elevator. Obviously there's a lot of work that has to go into it. And I think there's conspiracies and whatnot because it was all set to scale, I believe. Right. Yeah. So, but how you know how does that work? Does Stanley go and do something else while they're getting this thing corrected? 
Does he, you know, how many crews quit because of this? Like, are you fucking kidding me? Are you going to do this again? I'm out. Right. Well, it, it takes a long time to gather that much baby blood, dude. <laughs> no, like, in, all ser- in all seriousness, um, no, the elevator scene is definitely, to me, right up there. I just want to say, though, that the Here's Johnny is probably more famous from this film than it is from the Johnny Carson show. You're which right. Is where it comes from. 100% is. Yeah. You know, and, and the story behind that, too, was Kubrick wanted com- uh, comedic relief during that. It's, you know, he, know, he knew it was a horror movie, but what's something to throw the audience to keep them off and, you know, collaborated with Jack on it? And I think Jack actually has some more scenes that he actually wrote in this. He was, he was writing during this had input on his character, but my God, that, uh, yeah, that's just a line. I mean, hell, even that Mountain Dew commercial with uh, Cranston over the Super Bowl last year. Yeah. I mean, hell, he was, he was in it, but um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of, I saw a guy recreate the entire uh, elevator scene with CGI and actual like, you know, using technology like water flow. Like this is how it would actually move. And the guy just was like, I can't do it any better than what Stanley did. It looked scene for scene like this is a legitimate, like there's nothing more realistic than what Stanley actually could have done. So kudos to him. I mean, Hence the fact that I say, You'll never trump practical effects. Maybe, maybe yeah. in 50 years when computer and technology is, is up to par, but practical effects are – I will always put a movie that uses practical effects over any other budget as far as that goes. Yeah, man. And, and also want to say real quick about the elevator scene. I think this is still an unknown, so another little mystery to go along with The Shining's lore. There seems to possibly be an unknown form that the blood spills on in the elevator scene. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that one's taken me down a few times. And I've tried finding that, but I, it's a body. I, I've seen something spilling out of that. And it's, it's a little freaky to me. Yeah. It's freaky, man. Or a alien. I don't know. I, it's some sort of spilling. It's, it's a native American fetus. I'm, I'm telling you. All right, Tibu, all work and no play. Well, that makes Jack a dull boy. So um, what is this here, like different translations? Yeah, I thought that this was interesting. Like Stanley's cut, he, he actually had hands in on, like, hey, if this is going to an Italian audience, we need to, you know, translate these scenes correctly. That's probably one of the most famous quotes from this film. What's all this shit here, Brent? What's, what have you got for me? So Stanley was had his hands in, even in on the you know different releases within different uh, countries. So even the translation of the all work and no play was different in each region. So when it's translated from their language, it even comes out different. Damn. All right, we've got Italian, we've got French, German, all this shit. Let's see. Autant um, va mieux quoi I guess that's how you say that shit. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. 
Is that that that's what the French got? Yeah. All right. What's this next language? Uh, das German. Das German. Okay. So, was du hot kannst bossigen das nicht aufmuchen. I can't say that shit. Don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today. Really? All right, Jack. What? And th this next translation is. Um, I believe it, Italian. It has, and it's got multiple meanings, right? Mm -hmm. I can't do an Italian, man. El matino haloro en boca. The early bird gets the worm, or the morning has gold in its mouth. That's interesting. Like to see that written over and over again. I wonder why he changed, or if it just comes out translated differently like that. Yeah, I think I think it is one of those like work and no play. And he's just like, it's not translating. So he just came up with his own little sort of, you know, phrase. Let me guess. This last one is Spanish. Si. Uh, no por mucho madruga. Emense mas temprano, I guess. Uh, even if you rise early, dawn will not come any sooner. I like all these translations, man. This is cool. Yeah, it kind of does take that whole scene where if Wendy's reading this, like I, now I'm like, well, the morning has <laughs> rolled in its mouth. Like, wow, geez, what's going on? And he chose and his, to be done. So then, you know, my brain's being like, wait, why? What's this mean? <laughs> it's fucking weird. All right, boys, we've been talking about The Shining for long enough now, the production, the casting, all that good shit. But how about we fill everyone in on what this film's actually about? Let's dive into our scene-by-scene -scene breakdown, the interview. The film opens with the sound of ominous horns as we pass over a lake, mirror-like, reflecting nearby mountains as Jack Torrance drives to the Overlook Hotel. The Overlook is a destination for tourists seeking nature and the beauty of this mountainous region, but it closes down in the winter as the roads become impassable. Jack meets with Stuart Allman and Bill Watson, managers of the Overlook, in regards to a caretaker's position for the winter months. Hours away, Jack's wife Wendy and son Danny are eating and discussing going to the hotel. Danny seems indifferent to the idea of five months in a hotel, but his imaginary friend Tony states plainly he doesn't want to go. Needless to say, Jack gets the job. Allman does feel, however, he would be remiss not to tell Jack about Charles Grady, one of the previous caretakers who, like Jack would be, was accompanied by his family. You see, Grady went a bit mad, and it seems he decided to murder his family with an axe. This is the opening few scenes of the film, guys. Um, immediately sucked in by the opening of this movie uh the turquoise credits i gotta i gotta say real quick for some trivia here if uh you invert the colors for the turquoise credits you get the carpet colors from the iconic carpet pattern later in the film mm. um I, I, we, we we spoke before the show uh the recording of this episode and we could kind of go off on the opening crawl of the title credit scene alone for like 30 minutes. So I'm going to, I'm going to be succinct in saying that all of this just draws me in and 
from Jack talking to Almond, like like Busy B was saying, something about Almond draws you in. It, it's all of this is just magnetic. Even when you go into his office, I mean, there's theories in the first 30 seconds that we introduced this movie, there's already two theories that have been established. The first one is the fact that, hey, Allman's office is the window and it is not real. Right, the impossible it, window. The impossible window, they call it. If you look at the layout and the format of the movie, especially as you go along, that window cannot and should not be there. The second one is another one that is very interesting, but I think it's a little bit far-fetched, is with Bill Watson, in that Bill Watson himself may be the person in charge, but he's kind of off on the sidelines. Hmm. There is an interesting theory, and there's interesting things in this opening scene that do not make sense. One of the more important ones is the fact that when they come back out, and, and I'm jumping ahead a second here, but when Jack Nicholson is sitting in the waiting room, he's reading a magazine. The magazine he's reading is a Playgirl. Mm -hmm. There's no way you would find a pornographic magazine just sitting in a hotel lobby. Hotel lobby. But even more importantly, and we're going to touch on this in a minute here when we get into the themes and theories, one of the main articles in that talks about incest. And there's a lot that goes into this movie as far as the sexual molestation and assault and whatnot between Jack and Danny. So there's, again, to piggyback off of Tibu, we could, we could spend two hours just on this intro scene. Danny shines. While Jack telephones Wendy to tell her the good news, Danny is brushing his teeth when he suddenly has a vision twin girls in baby blue dresses and an elevator surging with torrents of blood. He wakes up in his bed moments later, a doctor by his side and his concerned mother watching over. Danny tells the doctor that he can't remember what happened after he was talking to Tony, who Wendy reveals is his imaginary friend. The doctor tries to question Danny about Tony, but is shut down and decides it's best for him to rest now. Wendy and the doctor discuss the situation as a somewhat common occurrence in children dealing with trauma, and seeing as how Danny was abused by his father, this convinces Wendy not to worry. She's even more hopeful since Jack, who had been drunk when he pulled Danny's arm out of its socket, had been sober for several months. You know, I, I look at this as like, the first five viewings of this, you're not really catching on to the abuse nature uh, of what happened. You know, she, she's probably just kind of like one of those, you know, housewives that, oh, geez, you know, I'm coming, you know, it, it's one of those rare instances, you know, he came home and he, you know, shook him by the shoulder or something, you know, going and looking deeper is, you know, he, they were from Vermont, and then ended up in Boulder, and now they're looking for, so he was a teacher, now he's a writer. So clearly moving completely away from, uh, you know, a certain scenario into another one, and then moving to the hotel, it's, it's super deep. But I think also the doctor scene too is, is, you know, Danny's got his pants off, it's all foreshadowing, it's right. like, it's very, 
well, you know, there's books everywhere in this place too. So they're a very well-read family. Um, yeah, when Wendy's was, reading when you first see her. Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, that's right. So as far as like setting the stage for conspiracies and, and deeper meaning, I think that that Danny Shines really sets it up to be, okay, first scene is kind of like, you know, just a guy interviewing for a job. Let's look at their family life. And it's like, oh, wow. Um, it's got an imaginary friend, kind of a weird little voice. She's a very, you know, simple uh, woman. And then the next scene is a doctor is hovering over and there's, you know, he had an episode uh, already ominous. Right. And to stress even more, again, this is a Stanley Kubrick film, and there's nothing that is not intentional. So this makes you, as a viewer, start to overanalyze things, and for a good right. But this is where you start to see things if you've got a good eye in that on his bedroom door, when you're seeing him with the doctor, he's got one of the seven dwarfs on the door. Dopey. But then Dopey, yes. And then in a couple of minutes later, Dopey is missing. Well, a lot of people initially would contribute that to a continuity error, but you have to imagine that nothing he, he's so meticulous, he will spend days setting up a scene. I mean, we're gonna get into the dry storage scene in a minute, but he will spend days setting up the scene and everything you see in the background. And then he will spend even more time setting up his shots. Where is the camera going to be positioned? What are we going to be seeing as well? So nothing you have to imagine is by accident. So again, this scene right here opens up the fact that yes, you get Danny, he's uh, got no pants on, his hands are covering his junk, if you will you're missing dopey on the door here in a minute. There's a lot of things that you can start to overanalyze, but then again, you have to ask yourself, am I overanalyzing it or is it supposed to be analyzed to this extent? I'm going to touch on um, the bear scene a little bit later, but in this scene, a little bit of trivia here for you, the bear pillow that Danny is laying on when the doctor is speaking to him, uh, if you look up the original product, the original pillow, the eyes on the bear pillow are completely round. But in this scene, they are cut. They're, they're snipped away to mirror the elevators. I guess you'd call them eyes, but it's really the, uh, the floor dial on top of the elevator that shows you what floor the elevator's on. In oh. the previous uh, shining vision that Danny has where the blood's pouring out of the elevator. So a little bit more mirroring there and bears play more into the imagery coming up later. Oh yeah. I, and again, I think the suspense with the mundane is really starting to heighten here. You've got, you go from an interview into home life, which seems a little off. And then the next scene is, and the doctor is, is calm. Like nothing is really wrong here, but yet you're starting to feel this like something's off, something's deeper here. And, and, and that's where it's, it's starting to set the stage more. And I don't think there's really, yeah, I, I, I think if you 
if you had this thing on mute and you went to the next scene with with Danny Shines, is you know you you can tell that something's going on. Closing day. The Torrances make the drive up to the Overlook Hotel while casually talking about the Donner Party, who went missing somewhere in the Sierra Nevadas, and cannibalism learned from the television, so that makes it okay. Upon arriving, all of the last guests and hotel staff are leaving for the season, so the family is given a tour. They are shown the Colorado Lounge, the Gold Room, the famous hedge maze, the kitchen, and their living quarters. The overlook is vast, and much like the hedges outside, it is very much like a maze within a maze. Wendy and Danny are handed off to Dick Halloran, the head chef at the overlook. And while going over the endless supply of food they have in storage, Dick shines with Danny, asking him if he would like some ice cream, only asking Danny with his mind. Over a bowl of chocolate ice cream, Dick tries to talk to Danny about the shine. But the young boy is reluctant. He says Tony told him he isn't supposed to talk about it. And then flips it on Dick. <laughs> he asks about room 237. Why is Dick afraid of that room? But Halloran asserts that he is not afraid of room 237. And that Danny has no business going in there. Ever. Very, very powerful scene. You get a very you, you get the humanity of Dick Halloran. You you get the fact that he is a good guy, and even though you only know him for a few seconds beforehand, he's kind, he's warm-hearted. He takes a liking to Danny. The shining part, those that God help you if you're listening to this and you've never seen this movie. If you're this far in, you've never seen the shining. Shame, shame, shame on you. Couldn't pause. <laughs> yeah. But the Shining is is basically their uh, it's it's their way of communicating uh, through ESP, I guess I would say. Yeah. And it's, it's telepathy. What was that, Tibu? It's telepathy. I would yeah. say uh, yeah. more more yeah. akin to telepathy, and um, it's not it's not heavily explained in the film exactly the extent of what the shine yeah. is. Need to be really. No, no, it does not. Yep. You get enough, as far as you know what it is, you, you get you, you get enough of the backstory and Dick Halloran talking about the fact that him and his grandmother can have whole conversations without uttering a single word as well. But the weird thing is, is Danny and Tony, Tony is his imaginary friend that supposedly lives in his mouth. But you can't see him because if he opens his mouth, he goes and hides in his stomach. So there's theories on Tony, but I don't know if we're going to get into that right now. But uh, I, I was going to say, like, uh, Tony's come. Oh, he's coming along with me for the third time tonight. A month later. Some time has passed and the family has settled into a routine. Wendy brings Jack his breakfast at noon since Jack has been staying up later and later in order to pursue his writing, which is something that he's very passionate about and sees his opportunity at the Overlook as a means to an end. She then heads out to the hedge maze with Danny. As mother and son explore the labyrinth, Jack is tossing a ball around inside the hotel, whether out of boredom or to stimulate his creative juices, 
when he too comes across the hedge maze, only this maze is much smaller. It's a scale model, the same as the one outside. Jack stares down at the patterns before him, and from overhead, as if from some omnipresent view, we see Wendy and Danny finding the center of the hedge maze labyrinth. So the crazy thing with this whole entire film is that it takes place within about a month. Start to finish, you're about a month. Coming in the movie, they explain that, yeah, you'll be here for six months, five, five or six months by yourself. So that kind of hits home just the fact of how fast this moves along. I mean, they've been there for a month and everything is starting to fall into place as far as the movie goes and the plot points and everything moving along nicely. Yeah, I think that you look at now Jack is especially that, I guess you've been staying up later, hon, and she serves him breakfast in bed and he's, he seems happy, but yet at the same time, he's a little surprised that he slept in until 11. Hey, we're going to go out to the maze. He's kind of doing his thing. You know, is he the caretaker at this point? He's just kind of like a lazy bum. You're kind of like, <laughs> what's, your, what's your role here, Jack? Uh, no, yeah, dude, he is surprised that he's, his, his routine is changing too, and it's almost like, this this is again the car ride up he seemed a little a little snappy towards his family um but it's like as time goes on he starts to change uh wendy's role starts to change she like you're saying sort of becomes kind of the caretaker mm -hmm. a, a little bit but um i i find i want to say the imagery of this scene and and i know you guys are going to touch on this but Man, is that an incredible shot to this day of Jack peering down over the, the miniature scale model of the hedge maze yes. and then from the camera's point about. of view. Yep, this is amazing. Talk about the Kubrick look where he's he's got that green sweater on and he's just staring endlessly into the outside maze with his head down but eyes up type look. It's creepy as fuck. It's very effective. Mm -hmm. But also we start to get into what I would call the mirror theory because the mirror is almost a character in this movie. It's showcased multiple times and there's a couple other things we're going to touch on about it later as well. But when Shelley Duvall or Wendy comes in with his breakfast, your first look at Jack and I believe it's the entire scene is taking place through the mirror. Yep where he's in bed and he leans up and he's eating breakfast. And, and I will say just me personally watching this, maybe it's because I've watched this movie like four times in the last however long, the way he dips his bacon, I'm like, that guy's a fucking sociopath. He's a maniac. Like he dips his bacon so aggressively into those fucking eggs. I'm like, dude, who hurt you and how bad? Like, just there's small things that he does. But again, if you know the Boss Tuna, that's how you fucking eat bacon and eggs, my, my dude. And you need some biscuits in there too. No, you, you, and, you don't like fucking stab it. Yeah, what? you don't break your knuckles into the plate. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
no. It, but again, that that's just a Kubrick deal where, hey, this is the 97th take, and Jack Nicholson's like, I'm going to fucking stab this bacon in here because I just want to be done with this. Yeah, the um, that's that sort of scene where he's leaning over and you have this, like, you know, rectangle that's, you know, got this perspective. It's in multiple movies of his where it's this, you know, the monolith of 2021, or I mean, sorry, uh, 2001. It's just sort of the framing of that shot. It's more, it, it's a bigger, I guess it's it's framed much bigger than what the scene probably any, you know, is meant to be. So it just adds so much more weight, the way that the shots are chosen, again, with that mirror, uh, you're seeing the back of Jack's head as he's waking up. She's dropping stuff down. Uh, the, now, it, it really, it's opening up all these mundane shots, but they're adding more and more weight as you keep going through this. And yet, we haven't had a, a lick of suspense. There's really nothing that's more than, you know, maybe a, a spooky ghost story that, Dick Holleran has told Danny, we still have no sense of like what this movie is and where it's, going. where it's going. And we're already a third of the way in the movie, and it's now taking mundane, you know, basically scenes, but framing them in much more bolder shots, and it's 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 gaining momentum. Tuesday. As Wendy is preparing supper, Danny is riding his tricycle throughout the various hallways of the Overlook. He slowly stops right by room 237, curious and terrified. Danny slowly approaches the door and tries to turn the knob, but it's locked. With a new sense of fear hitting him, Danny gets back on his trike and tears down the hall away from the dreadful room. Wendy then enters the Colorado lounge where Jack has made himself up sort of an office and he's busy working at his typewriter. She informs him of the impending snow to which Jack becomes irritated. This irritation grows and he is seething as he declares the new rule is to never bother him while he is working. The sudden change in his tone, the anger in his voice, it completely defeats Wendy as she is obviously hurt by his attitude and retreats quietly so that Jack can continue his work. So this is the scene that is most notable for when it came out afterwards that Kubrick would do how many takes. This is a scene that they talked about in that they would do the first 10 to 15 or whatever it was and Jack would be by the books. And then they do another 10 to 15 and he would, you know, be fairly neutral. And then after another 10 to 15, he would start to be more expressionist with his looks as far as his eyebrows, his cheeks, his tone of voice. And it wasn't until after 50 or so takes, that's when Kubrick would take, and this is the scene that they would use and reference i suppose uh after all of that because he gets very animated with everything this is also kind of the linchpin 
of the whole movie and what Busy B was saying is, is yeah, at this point we're over a third of the way in and this is when we see, okay, this, the script has been flipped. We're, we're, we're seeing what's going on and we are getting a glimpse of where it's going with the reaction of Jack. And you see essentially the sanity of Wendy trickling and fading away from the scene. Yeah, I think it's the first use of like, it's vulgar, it's, it's biting. It's like, oh, this is now, now the, the frame matches up with the intensity of the dialogue. There might be a little bit more of uh, the score starts to change a little bit. Clearly, there is a shift in all the characters that they are, you know, as, uh, you know, the general manager said, he thought it was a cabin fever, as they said. So, yeah, we're starting to see things starting to take effect. Yeah, Jack's fangs definitely come out, and you get Wendy here portraying i think what stephen king initially wrote off uh, in the way he described it and she is very again i'm going to say like doe-eyed and, and mousy because she just completely submits to this guy going on a tirade but i think it's fueled on by what busy b was saying earlier like a history of abuse and trauma this guy was a fucking drunk he was an abuser if he's pulling his son that hard he probably smacked her around and so in, in through all of her optimism, she's now being berated by this guy for simply just trying to have a casual late night conversation, it seems, and just slinks away because she doesn't want to maybe stir up too much of a hornet's nest. I, I'm looking at this from the character's point of views when I'm thinking about this scene, and I, my heart goes out to her, and that guy's a fucking dick. Yeah. He's like... So why don't you get the fuck out? <laughs> I'm like, God damn, dude. Yeah, when, the way he ended it was the worst. He went on that whole tirade, and then he's like, now you can get the fuck out. And you're like, God. Just, just to be, I mean, even what makes it even more effective is the fact that this was like 40 years ago. Oh, yeah. And there's no internet. There's no cell phone service. She had to go back and sit in her room and feel like a piece of shit. And she didn't have anybody to talk to. Like she had to just, you know, man up quote unquote and take it with her, with her fucking son sitting there. And she could not vent. She could not pass time by going on, you know, Facebook or Instagram or FaceTiming her fucking mom or something like that. So shit was fucking different back then, dude. Yeah. Can you imagine now your son comes in mom what's wrong nothing i mean that's it it's just yeah she had a lot of weight she had to carry thursday wendy and danny are outside the hotel having a snowball fight in the midst of bliss while inside the overlook jack watches staring off into the void Again, the the iconic scene of the whole maze. I almost said corn maze. Hashtag welcome to Iowa. <laughs> the whole maze. You, you, 
again, you differ from the novel to the movie, and I feel it was very effective to piggyback off of what Tibu said. There was no technology back then that was going to make a bunch of fucking yard clippings look like movable animals. Very well done. You get the gaze of Jack. You get the iconic Kubrick look. Yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, I think in it's kind of whatever, as you keep watching this, some of the scenes kind of blend together. But really, this one was, you know, it's a happy scene of the uh, of Wendy and Danny outside having a little snowball fight. You know, she warned him, hey, you know, hon, that snow is really going to come down. Uh, so then the next scene is, yep, the snow's here, and they're really fucked now. The- KDK-1, the KDK-12. <laughs> KDK-1, the KDK-12, do you copy? And he is just completely over the edge now. It's um, They're out having fun. He's staring up a complete whiteout, and, you know, head down, eyes looking up. This the Kubrick stare. Supposedly, it's the the same stare of a bull with the you know the way that they're built is you know your head down eyes head up. Head down eyes up. When I was uh, in college, that was ringing true. So <laughs> you know, yeah, it's just an iconic, and, and then just the slow tracking in on his on his face. So again, using that steady cam, but instead single focus and just watching the the humanity leave somebody and then i think the score actually picks up on now and and you're starting to hear like this this you know deeper just a a very dark presence starting to really evolve on that i agree 100 percent. this is where for me this scene it, it does get its own uh title card in the film and it is just this one scene and I think this is – you were saying before the, the tonal shift was beginning in the scene prior where Jack starts to snap and you finally realize where this movie's probably going to go based on everything. And I think all those moments leading up to this were foreboding, but this scene is the first real scene of tension in the film of like the unknown of what is to come, but, but, you're, but you're clued in. And, and now you're seeing, like you said, the humanity just – evaporating it's incredible saturday wendy discovers the phone lines are down and uses their shortwave radio to communicate with the forest rangers she seems excited to have this conversation even if it is only about the down lines and the weather the ranger tells her that the lines usually go down this time of year and that she shouldn't expect them back for several months because of the weather and their isolated location He tells her it would be best to leave the radio on at all times now. Elsewhere, Danny is cruising through the maze of hallways on his big wheel and turns a corner only to stop dead in his tracks. The female twins in baby blue dresses from before have appeared here in the Overlook. They ask Danny to play with them forever and ever. But he can only hide his eyes from the horror his shine reveals the two mutilated bodies of the twin girls bloodied and laying there in the hallway. Again, there is so much that goes on in just this little snippet here. 
the first thing that you're going to get as a viewer watching this, I, I can only imagine what this scene was like in the theater and the fact that you get the difference of the sound design. This movie is not one that is scary because of jump scares. It's scary because of everything else that is done right. Sound design is a big thing of that. Just something simple as far as the, the big wheel going around and God help kids nowadays that don't have big wheels because they get these like power tractors and shit. They just not the same, but the, the sound design you get of going on the, the marble to the concrete or to the carpet, to the marble, to the carpet, very effective. But when Danny gets up to the big, the, the, the girls and Tony starts talking very, very creepy, very, very well done. Yeah, I think the the thing is that probably the scariest, you know, piece of horror and the the the, the thing that scares is you know people the most is the going crazy. Am I going crazy? Am I losing touch with reality more than there's a ghost, there's a monster? It's the the whole thing, and especially putting it in the, the fact that you're with family and you're having these horrible thoughts of, you know, either killing, you know, all of this around you. And, that, and, and to me, I think that was what turns this movie into, you know, an absolute just like mind fuck is all these things. And we're now starting to see it's not only Jack, it's Danny. And then going into Wendy, everyone is losing their mind. Going into the performances here, Wendy, uh, I just wanted to, to touch on her being just sort of slightly enthusiastic, talking to that ranger, like she even thanks him for the conversation. Again, makes my heart go out to her. And Danny sort of losing his mind there in the hallway while he shines. Uh, this like we were saying earlier very iconic and i won't i won't go over that again but i I did want to mention scene prior i think uh jack is shining when he's staring off into the distance that's part of a certain theory of what what's going on in this film as well nice nicely done monday with the endless snow of the colorado winter keeping them inside wendy and danny watch tv together in the lounge as jack sleeps his way through another day Eventually, Danny asks Wendy if he can go get his toy fire engine from their room and even promises to tiptoe as to be quiet and not disturb his father. Wendy allows him, but instead of retrieving his toy, Danny finds Jack sitting up in bed. His father beckons him, so Danny goes and sits in his lap. Jack is too tired to even sleep, but proclaims his great affection for the hotel. Danny sheepishly asks if his dad would ever hurt him or his mother. At first, Jack is agitated by this and the notion that maybe Wendy put this fear in Danny's mind, but reassures him that he would never do such a thing. Yeah, that one is... Uh, it, this one's... It, it's clearly now everyone is... Everyone's got cabin fever here. You know, I, 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 it plays on the strings of uh, depression. And I think that, you know, taking on this subject in 1980 is uh, extremely powerful. But to me, 
you you keep looking back at the, the especially this scene is you know if you have kids it affects you completely differently if you're a kid in watching this you can't help to be like just horrified in, in knowing that like the you know your protectors are not what they seem throws everything sort of in juxtaposition that it's just a masterpiece of how this story is un, unfurling and and really it's on how you're perceiving this movie now is like oh is this kid going to be safe is this kid is this kid actually the bad the you know can this kid end up being the bad person in the movie is is jack going to snap um is wendy going to redeem herself here you're just kind of waiting for this like this build up keeps it's a again we're checking on the boiler is the boiler going to blow? I think that's what we're looking at now. Is like, is this, you know, leading up to, is this all going to take head? Uh, it's extremely powerful. And, and I think the score keeps ramp ramping up too. We're starting in more like quick cuts. And then as well, the score is now all of a sudden the, the scary strings come in with the quick change of the scene it's starting to sync up. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, there's there's a few things to note of this as well, especially if you're looking for conspiracy theories and and what the meaning of this this film is. Number one, we'll first talk about the fact that the TV is going and there's no power cord to it. So you have the TV playing the summer of '42 and there's no power cord going to it. Also. This little tiny little snippet of the movie that Tibua just mentioned has a lot of eyebrow raising facts that could potentially support your idea of the whole sexual abuse part of it. Partly because of the fact that Danny walks in the room and Jack is already up. First off, that's creepy as shit when he's awake and just sitting on the edge of his bed, staring out the window. That's creepy in itself. The whole scene and dialogue portion of Jack and Danny is, is creepy as well. But again, if we're going into what we'll talk about later as the mirror theory, this whole conversation goes on through your perspective of watching him through the mirror. And there's a lot that's going to go into this. We'll touch into that more here in a minute. Yeah. I think the, the uh, one last thing to add on that was, you know, Danny, I guess, or I should say Jack, he, he reemphasizes, you know, what the, the twins say. You know, I want to stay here forever and ever yeah. and yes. ever. It's that's, sort of like they're stuck in this loop and their you know reality is completely just gone now and um the way danny just pauses and asks questions throughout this whole movie it's it, you know it starts out oh he's just a cute kid and now it's like fuck is he really abused is he just like completely mentally like just gone you know even though if you like would take every scene of what Danny asks his dad, it's all the same tone. He's never like, you know, scared of his dad. It's always just this monotone, like, 
Fact Probably a abused kid. Yeah. Wednesday. As Danny plays with a bunch of toy cars and trucks on the carpet, a small ball rolls right up to him on the floor. At first, he thinks it could be his mom messing with him, but he soon discovers the unlocked and open door to room 237. Meanwhile, down in the basement while tending to the hotel's boiler, Wendy hears Jack screaming from upstairs. Startled, she races to the Colorado lounge and finds Jack slumped over in his desk, having a fit in his sleep. He comes to and claims that he was having the worst nightmare of his life, in which he had killed Wendy and Danny, chopping them up into bits. Familiar dismemberment. At that moment, Danny enters the lounge, sucking his own thumb with his clothes ripped and torn. Wendy quickly picks up her son after noticing bruises all over his neck and knowing that they are the only people in the hotel and given Jack's abusive past and his recent outbursts, she blames him for Danny's injuries. The, the primal scream that was coming from his dream is one thing that you just, it's deep, it's, it's moving. It's like, oh, this is some messed up uh psychological thriller here right now yeah he even says like and this this is part of his character that i like i'm drawn to this part of him because i still even if i've seen this movie a million times i still want to have hope in his character to an extent um where he says i i think i'm losing my mind and and he sounds woeful and 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 guilty yeah. And regretful of his own nightmare. That's deep shit, man. You're right. I mean, upon first time watch, you're you're almost wondering if there's any type of redemption that's getting planted. But on the opposite side of that same coin, after your hundredth watch, you're you're like you said, you're hopeful in that there is some semblance of him left. And it's, it's, it's almost kind of sad because this carries into what we're going to talk about next with the reaction as far as what's going on. I mean, it, it does help facilitate that idea that's brewing in your brain as far as the abusive and even the sexual misconduct, maybe we'll call it, facet of the relationship between Danny and, and Jack. The Gold Room. Jack storms out of the lounge and into the Gold Room, a spacious ballroom meant for parties and lavish events. He sits at the empty bar and forsakes his goddamn soul for a single glass of beer. This invocation summons Lloyd, a bartender Jack seemingly knows, as well as a full assortment of liquor. Lloyd gives Jack a couple of drinks while they make small talk about fatherhood and Wendy being a nuisance when, speak of the devil, Wendy comes running in tearful and fear-stricken. She tells Jack that a strange woman attacked their son in one of the hotel rooms. She pleads with him. Jack, now sitting at an empty bar again, decides to investigate. Down south in Miami, all of this is taking place while Dick Halloran lies awake in his bed, seeing it with the shine. So this is where we meet Lloyd, 
the bartender. So the one thing I had thought about that I'd never seen anybody else really talk about and mention, and maybe it's because I enjoy my beer and liquor, is the fact that this bar is got to be stocked with absolutely everything there is. Lloyd has to be a very suitable and dare we say professional bartender. Mm -hmm. Jack sits down and he wants a bourbon. Okay, so Jack wants a bourbon. Lloyd hands him a bottle of Jack Daniels on the rocks. Jack Daniels is a whiskey. It's an American whiskey. I cannot find anything to support where my thoughts are going with this. And I know for a fact that it's not a mistake. I just thought it very interesting that Jack says he wants a bourbon on the rocks and Lloyd turns around and gives him a Jack Daniels, which is arguably the most popular American whiskey there is. That's one thing I noticed that really got my brain turning. It's nothing as it seems, man. That's what it is. Yeah. Lloyd, the fucking bartender. Talk about an iconic scene with some great dialogue. I mean, this is one that I think of often. And I like the cordial nature of Lloyd, juxtaposed by the overly friendly nature of Jack now after having fucking gone crazy with his wife acted strange as fuck with his son and I'll touch you guys have been touching on on that theory all night and I've been quiet about it and I'm going to save that for later but um and now now he's like oh yeah Lloyd you're 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 the best one you're best of them all Lloyd <laughs> it's like what the fuck kind of banter is this all of a sudden and is Jack shining is this the hotel manifesting something is he gone has he gone completely fucking mad Everything about this scene is incredible. Uh, again, one I often think of when, I, when I'm reflecting on this film. Yeah, in the fact that, you know, he's, he, he's, he's getting drunk. He's off the wagon, and he's, he, he's clearly, you can tell, you know, he's, he's had a few. He, he changes his, his whole, his speech and everything. He's, he, he's a friendly, cordial, you know, guy. He's kind of flipping some, you know, just... Small talk with him. Justifying his past. Right. And, you know, he's, you know, making, you know, misogynistic comments about his sperm bank upstairs. <laughs> yes. Uh, he's, you know, and then, and then Wendy comes and interrupts him and he's, he's drunk. And, you know, the way he talks to her, he's. Is he drunk though? Well, the way he, the way he, the way I, I, the way I've looked at it is, you know, he, he looks at her and he's like, you know, are you out of your goddamn you mind? mind, you know? And, uh, and then all of a sudden he kind of snaps back to it. But that first sentence, he, I mean, he was, you know, he clearly was lit up and then, yeah, just the, the, again, going back to how he treats her, you know, it's, it just it just felt like kind of the old jack he's he's drunk and now he's dealing with his so bank. so there's a couple other things to note with this scene in that the the again the script is flipped because danny 
confesses something that we don't know to Wendy in that, no, it wasn't dad. It was some other person in room 237. Another interesting thing is that the, the mirror theory, we'll, we'll talk about that briefly here, in that whenever you see something with a mirror, that shows the truth. So whether it's in the bedroom when you see the perspective of the scene going on through the mirror, such as the first time with uh, Shelly, or I'm sorry, uh, Wendy giving Jack his meal and he's upbeat and it just progressively goes downhill to the fact when Danny goes into the bedroom later to get his fire truck and he sees his dad and they have that conversation there. So the mirror theory carries on into, I would say it almost culminates into this part of the movie here in that when Jack moves down the hallway, there are four mirrors in that whole entire sequence of him walking down the hallway. Every time he walks in front of the mirror, he does a little skits kind of skits out a little bit like freaks out because he's pissed but he only does that in front of the mirror and that carries even further into when he sits in front of the bar because there's a mirror be mm -hmm. behind him at the bar when it's Lloyd and then you can get even further into the fact that he gets up and he starts dancing a little bit and that's when Delver Grady bumps into him and they go into the bathroom well guess what the bathroom is fully made up of mirrors i want to say too uh, about the mirror scene and how that ties into the incest theory every time jack passes a mirror and that goes into your truth theory about mirrors he's disgusted with himself and he tries to block out the image by skitzing out as you said room two three seven Jack enters the room in question, scanning it cautiously. He makes his way through the bedroom and up to the bathroom door. After pushing the door open, a naked young woman pulls back the shower curtain and climbs out of the tub. Jack is entranced by her as she walks over to him, and they embrace and begin to kiss. But this mischief is brought to an end when Jack sees the reflection of the woman in the mirror. She wasn't a beautiful silent siren, but a rotting, cackling old hag. Jack, gripped by confusion, repulsion, and fear, flees room 237. So there's a lot that goes into this as well too. I would say as a kid, this is probably the most terrifying part of the movie. First off, you get a good looking chick, you get boobs, but then it transitions into a rotting older woman that has got this scary fucking laugh that's gonna terrify you and haunt your dreams forever and ruin relationships with girls. No, but it, and seriously, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's a scary scene for sure. Well, and it goes back, she's coming out of the tub again. It's like all the, it just flips everything. It's like, it, it's even a descent into more madness of Jack. The thing that really just sets it is his, you know, those, those tight shots on his face and he, he sees the girl opening up the curtain and it's just that deviant sort of like, 
it just his, his, his thousand expressions are going on there. It's so tight on his face, and the you know the 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 score again is just heightened perfectly with it. But man, it, that is that is you know as a kid, you know I've mentioned this before. It's like horror movies; they're rated R. You're 1980s. You're guaranteed to get a set of boobs, and if you're lucky, a bush shot or something. And yes, at all. Me as a kid, I'm like. I rented this from the library for free and they didn't even say anything. I was like, this is the best thing ever. And then all of a sudden it's, you know, Nightmare man, scene. it is. Yeah. Just cackling. And I, you know, and and then go to the scene where he's walks into the apartment and didn't see nothing anything. Happened. Nothing happened. You know, it, Oh, he's sleeping. Okay, good. Well, nothing's really going on. Couldn't tell you what's going on. You know, he, there's something to be said about how he deals with trauma too, is he's, he's really putting it down too, just as everyone else, just as Danny, just as his, his wife, they're all just, they're not in grips with reality. There's a couple parts of this scene that really will inflate those people's theories as far as what's going on. And the first one is the fact that when you walk, okay, so there has been very few things of this movie that has been outright admitted. One of them is the fact that the carpet that was chosen to go in between, I would say, maybe the kitchen area and the Colorado room was specifically chosen and designed for that area. The carpet now in room 237 has a very phallic mm. image on it. And there's no two ways about it. I mean, there's a straight up penis looking part in the middle of that. Very phallic. It looks like there's a penis in it. So a lot of people are grasping onto that and saying that that's just giving them more, I would say, evidence in their whole idea as far as the sexual abuse portion of this so when you walk into room 237 walking into room 237 you don't see any actor whether it's danny first going in mm -hmm. which you suppose is danny or jack or even wendy it's all pov shot you don't see anything with jack until he's in the actual bathroom so a lot of people think that this is more of a a representation or it's more of almost like a perversion as far as what is going on in their their mind that it may not even have happened overall also again we can go back to the mirror theory in that everything's all hunky-dory and they say that room 237 is the room that Danny was whatever in and when Jack sees his reflection in the mirror is when he gets disgusted out and it's the old woman. So there's a lot. I'm, that I'm, I'm very glad you said that because I was going to raise that point. Um, again, I, I don't want to get too deep into this. I'll save the incest theory, my perspective on it for the end. But yes, this is uh, Jack being again, passing mirrors, looking into mirrors, going into the mirror truth theory. It, it, he is completely disgusted with himself and he's reliving Danny's trauma in, in this scene. 
in certain in, from a certain perspective. Yeah, totally agree. The ballroom party. Dick Halloran is worried for the family staying at the Overlook, so he phones the forest rangers in Colorado to see if they would check on them. Jack returns to Wendy and tells her that there's no woman in room 237, and despite her begging for his help, he remains steadfast and staying put at the hotel. He goes back to the gold room, which is now a frenzy of activity. It would seem a huge party is going on now, and Lloyd is back with the same alcoholic refreshments. Jack takes a drink, and he goes to mingle with his new company when one of the hotel staff bumps into him and spills his tray of drinks all over Jack. The man is apologizing and takes Jack to the gentleman's room to clean him up. Jack realizes that this man, Delbert Grady, must have been the caretaker he had heard of, and even confronts the man about his supposed sins, the axe murdering of his wife and two daughters. Grady differs with Jack, telling him that he was never the caretaker. Jack has always been the caretaker. A deal with the devil ensues, and Jack agrees to correct his family and prevent them from leaving. So funny thing with this is there's a lot of misconceptions with this part because there's a Delbert Grady and there's a Charles Grady. Yeah. So Delbert Grady is who Jack meets in the restroom. Delbert Grady, as the story told by Ullman, is the former caretaker that actually axe murdered his family. Yeah, I think when we step into, we have the gold room, and then he spills something on him, and you go into another room, which is completely red. It's, uh, you know, heavily on, like you said, the deal with the devil. That scene is the one that sticks out most in my mind is Jack, Jack is, he's still happy-go-lucky. He's loving that it's a party. Oh, I get it. And then the guy introduces himself. And Jack has to pull, you know, pull it out of uh, Del Delbert on who he was. And eventually it comes to fruition that he is – you know, the man who, who he thought he was, um, even though he's a, telling him that he was the caretaker and yeah, th this, this builds up more mystery in the film right here because it just throws the audience completely off and fucking Grady's delivery of how he had to correct his family that, is so yes. chilling, man. Yep. I think I, I want to say the actor do this part here and the way that he was talking and speaking and everything he had said was just perfect. Mm. I say the deal with the devil shit too, to go along with the red of the bathroom. This is the red room quote unquote. And it's like the transition to hell where Jack is now being asked by from certain perspectives, the hotel to carry out this deed. I'll, I want to touch on that later. And to me, it just it it's <laughs> you you got the fucking pentagram. What's the name of the beer? Uh, it's a surly pentagram. Yeah, you got this for a reason, yeah. man. There's satanic imagery in or metaphor or you know a, analogy. Maybe I'm not finding the right word. I'm a Cajun, so forgive me. But there's definitely some satanic shit buried in here, along with the incest earlier. 
I think it was um, Almond saying something about, uh, oh, yes, we've had celebrities here. And uh, yeah. uh, oh, what is it? Uh, yeah, royalty. Oh, has there been royalty here? Oh, nothing but the best. Frazzle drip. Um, <laughs> so, no, this scene is um, overall, man, it just it's builds powerful. more and more. Again, one of those where it, it, it cuts between the two tight shots on each person's face. Uh, you know, Jack's facial expressions. We're getting into like the thousands now. Where you're just seeing like this psychotic, you know, the smiles, the, the eyebrows raising and deviant smiles. I mean, my gosh, this guy is... Just I feel like I would have a lot of fucking fun if I was Jack Nicholson playing this role. Like, I honestly feel like I would, even if it was a hundred takes, I, I think I would be able to give each take. Imagine the edits you could get f- from the takes made of this film, the types of different films you could get. It's crazy. Yeah. You know, you know, especially on a guy like Jack too, who's been on some pretty big meaty roles already that he is just probably loving the fact that he is able to express Chew and scenery in ball anyways all work and no play hidden away in their room wendy is distraught and trying to talk to danny but only tony answers her jack now on a mission removes a few components from the radio just as the forest rangers are trying to reach them and retires to the lounge to finish his work. With no definitive answer from the Torrance family, Dick decides to fly to Colorado and make the trek up the mountain to the overlook by way of a snowcat. At her wit's end, Wendy tells Danny to stay in their room while she goes and talks to his father. She brings along with her a baseball bat and tries to find Jack but only finds the typewriter ramblings of a madman. Pages upon pages with only one sentence repeated infinitum. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Her terror and confusion overtake her as Jack appears. Their entire confrontation seen by Danny, who is at that very moment using the shine. Jack taunts and threatens his wife, stalking her up the staircase in the Colorado lounge. To where frightened and cornered and left with no options, Wendy can only swing away, striking Jack and sending him tumbling down the staircase where he lay unconscious. It's deep. <laughs> yeah. When he comes out, and especially after she's kind of discovered his writings, it really is a whole another level that this, it's kind of like that onion that you just keep, peeling away can it get any more just like the you know 100th take the same way this movie can it get any more deep into this psychosis of insanity here she discovers that he comes out there's about four lines in that whole series here that are iconic and just so well done this is this might be my favorite scene of like drama and tension possibly in the film. I and I I'm not going to go into it but I think the mirrored scene in Doctor Sleep is fantastic. Um shout out to that movie. But 
Jack's lines here, and and I know it's not right, but it always cracks me up when he 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 wants to. Wendy goes in there to talk about getting Danny some help, and Jack beats her to the punch, and is like, "I think we I want to discuss Danny." Like he's going off about it and what should be done about him, and he's like, "You want him to? You're concerned and all this." And she's like, "Yes, I I, I want him to see a doctor as soon as possible." And I always crack up when Jack's like, he mocks her and he's like, as soon as possible. I don't know why. I'm sorry. <laughs> it does though. I can't help but chuckle, even though this scene is fucked up, man. <laughs> he stalks her up the staircase and she manages to fucking fend him off. And I'm like cheering like, fuck. Yes, dude, this is fuck this guy. He's done lost his mind. He's gonna, he's gonna fuck her up. He tells her as much. Yeah, that's the that's the one where you really are you are rooting for Wendy, and that's it, it, that sort of survivor's sort of instinct where you're like, take him out, get rid of him. The classic line with him, you know, I'm gonna, uh, under obligation, and I've got contract, <laughs> and oh, that I yeah, mean, that's that, that's a good. He is, I mean, it, it it is some classic banter that he is giving her. Uh, well, he's building so himself up just typical. like he was denying his fucking. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, it's uh, it's yeah, it, it, it's intense. Yeah, he he's fucking again, like praising himself, but meanwhile, Wendy's been taking care of fucking everything, and it's like that's why she's like, "What are you talking about?" She's even poor thing. She's so fucking confused, man. That that this is this again, great fucking scene. Here's Johnny. Wendy drags the barely conscious Jack into the kitchen storeroom and locks him inside. And although he tries ordering her to open the door, tries playing on her sympathies, nothing he says convinces her to let him out. She sobbingly tells him that she's going to use the hotel snowcat to bring Danny down the mountain and will send help for Jack. This only drives him back into a fit of mad laughter. And Wendy soon realizes why when she finds the radio doesn't work and the snowcat has been rendered unusable. Now out of options and unsure of what to do, Wendy retreats to the family room with Danny. Soon enough, Jack is let out of the storeroom after having a conversation with Grady through the locked door. He's tasked with killing his family instead of merely correcting them. Tony knows Jack is on the prowl, and tries to warn Wendy through Danny by using her lipstick to write red rum on their bedroom door. She's jolted from her slumber by Tony yelling, Red rum! Red rum! Over and over, and to her sheer horror, she sees the truth reflected in the room's mirror. Red rum spells murder. At that very moment, Jack begins axing down the door, trying to get at his family. Wendy slides Danny through the bathroom window where he goes down a hill of snow safely, but Wendy cannot fit through the window and must face the axe-wielding Jack. Talk about a hell of a way to start wrapping up and ramping up the closing scenes of a movie. This is, at this point, you're, you're kind of on a white-knuckle ride as far as what's going on. You have no idea what's going on with Danny. Tony is 100% taken over. Jack Nicholson's performance, and I, I just want to say the camera shot of him when he's in 
the dry storage, trying to negotiate, if you will, with with Wendy, um, with Wendy is is phenomenal. That that was done perfectly. Yeah, iconic. You know, he's insane, but yet he's trying to act sane. I think I I hurt my head. I'm feeling dizzy. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> bleeding, but yet she's not having any part of it. I think again, it, you know, we're looking at a piece of film that, with that shot, looking up at him, is one of those that you know is in the history books. That's that's one of those where you're just like, I think even Stanley's like, "Give me the camera. I'm going right underneath yeah. Jack here, and we're filming this." Yeah, it it got, you know, when he got let out, again, he's got that fucking look in his eyes and he's just that <laughs> perverted. It's it's insane. It's he's kind of he, like he's almost like, taunting her too. Yeah. When she's like, "I'm going to go, I'm going to call the force office. Um, they're going to send got a big out. surprise go coming to you." Yeah, she's talking to herself. I mean, there's nobody else she can really talk to. And she's just like, okay, I'm going to do this and this. I think, I think this scene and the previous scene shows the strong side of her character where you said the survival instinct kicks in. She needs to see about her son. Fuck this guy. I'm going to hit him with a bat in the head. He's going to go down the stairs. In the next scene, she's not a dumbass. She's like, fuck this guy. I'm going to leave him locked in here. She plays it smart, man. She's smart. She's not just a little dumb, you know, ditz head. I really love this this part of her character, and I think this shows strength. And and I, I fucking dig the hell out of out of her performance in these scenes. Lost in the labyrinth. Just before Jack can get into the bathroom, he and Wendy hear the sound of a snowcat approaching out in the cold, dark night. Dick has finally arrived and makes his way into the overlook. While calling out to whoever may still be in the hotel, Dick is attacked by Jack, who plunges the axe straight through the cook's chest, killing him. Danny sees this event take place while hiding, using the shine, and can't hold back a scream of terror. Jack clues into this and begins chasing Danny through the hotel and eventually out into the hedge maze. Wendy is now out of the bathroom and trying to find Danny, only to discover numerous ghosts haunting the hotel, as well as the dead body of Dick Halloran. Jack is not far behind Danny now in the frosted over maze, but Danny has a plan. He backtracks in his exact footsteps near the center of the maze and hides out of sight. Jack comes across the end of his son's tracks and heads in some random direction, allowing Danny to make his escape. He reunites with Wendy outside, and the two of them take Dick's snowcat down the mountain while a wild jack bellows along with the engine of the snowcat, lost in the labyrinth of his own madness. The next morning, Jack is shown to be frozen dead in a maze, while inside the hotel he is pictured among many other guests and staff in an old black-and-white photo of the Overlook during their 4th of July ball from 1921. This is the end of the movie. We, we wrapped it all up. A nice little bow. The The best part is, again, we talked about it previously, the whole chase scene at the end of the movie with Jack Torrance going through the maze. Little cues throughout the movie. Wendy and Danny going through. They know the maze fairly well. 
Danny and his six-year-old genius backtracks uh, through a couple of his tracks, hides off from the side. His dad goes through, gets confused when he sees no more tracks. Boom, that's his demise. And the iconic shot at the end of a Jack sitting upright with his eyes wide open, open, given the Kubrick look. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of personifies the whole movie. I want to let uh, Brent finish, finish this off for the finale. So I just want to jump in real quick and say about Halloran's death and everything leading up to it. Cause we didn't touch on it. The heart beating throughout his entire trip where, where he takes a flight. Um, it's not throughout the entire trip, but it's throughout most of it. You, you hear this heartbeat. And that just built, even in like you were calling the mundane shots, it's him taking a flight, talking to a stewardess, him calling a friend of his to get a snowcat rental available when he arrives. It, it still builds so much tension and you walk with him through the hotel so slowly and out of nowhere, like a feral wild man, Jack comes screaming and just ends him instantly like fuck you man everything you just did and went through to get there and help it didn't fucking matter it's fucked up man yeah and the way he swung at it too he's like licking his chops he's like it's oh he loved batting practice it's just so uh, (laughs) brutal it's yeah absolutely brutal and the scream and then every cut was with that sort of like xylophone sort of like you know heavy hitting but it, the, the the tempo of that every cut of those last five scenes was just very intense jack's acting throughout that you know he's hurt but yet he's he you know his his eye is to end his family doesn't matter if he's going to live or not but he knows that that's his redemption and that's his case now is to you know, correct this. And he's, you know, got a bum leg. He's, you know, he's not dressed for the outdoors, but yet he's, you know, he's, he's yelling for Danny. Oh, Danny boy. It's, uh, it's absolutely like one of those heightened things where it's just now madness and the, the score, you know, the tempo of the whole movie is just super fast. It's just going. You're just, whereas the first third of the movie is so slow. It's so like mundane. Where now the last 10 minutes of the movie is your heart's pounding out of your chest. You're just, uh, you know, as a, as a viewer, you don't know what's going to happen next. You've, you've taken... All the scenes with Dick Holleran that are, you know, a sweet man, slow talking, and you ended it. It doesn't matter what you thought of that character. He's gone. There's no... He has 30 seconds in the hotel saying, hey, is anyone here? And then, you know, the best part is at the very end, you just get a less and less more... I would say coherent Jack because it starts out as Danny, Danny boy. And at the end, it's. He's He's doing his best Rocky. 
he's doing his best Rocky Four from on top of the mountain. Drago. Yep. Well, I guess the same is the ending for him in in, in uh, Scatman's character is that you're kind of hoping for like some sort of closure, but no, it's not there. You know, he he's left out in the cold, and the next scene is he's dead. And then <laughs> that classic so cut into like, what the fuck just happened? And then you're you have another scene where it's like, what the fuck does this mean? It's, <laughs> yes, it's that slow tracking shot, and it's him in 1921. So that that ties everything together in what I think was meant to be interpreted this way is that Jack has always been cursed since birth. He was just a reincarnate of the exact same person tasked with the exact same duty as being the winter caretaker. It just happened to take him 40 years or whatever before his number was drawn. And, you know, he was, no matter what, whether it's fate or what, he was going to be drawn to that hotel and he was going to be the caretaker in the winter for the Overlook Hotel. Yeah, and any constant reader and fan of the Dark Tower series will know that Ka is a wheel and that Jack Torrance might be a twinner of Roland Deschane. That's another deep, deep, deep cut theory right there for you Stephen King fans. Boom. Influence on pop culture. Not only was it overlooked by the Golden Globes and the Oscars, but Kubrick found himself nominated as... I mean, I can't even read this straight-faced. He was nominated for a Razzie as Worst Director, which is just mind-blowing. But whatever. I mean, it it is what it is. Like I said, some of these movies are what they call cult classic. They take a couple of years for people to realize the genius of them. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know they had Razzies back then. The Shining opened up on uh, in the U.S. Uh, May 23rd, 1980. Uh, reviewers didn't quite know what to make of it. Many were either baffer, baffled or hostile. How can anyone make a, f- a film so fictitiously beautiful and still leave it with so many loose ends, asked the New York Times. First and foremost, it's mesmerizingly lovely, so handsome, you may be halfway out of the theater before you, those nagging questions arise. This is a good quote, too. The crazier Nick- Nicholson gets... The more idiotic he looks, Shelley Duvall transforms the warm, sympathetic wife of the book into a simpering, semi-retarded hysteric, wrote Variety, accusing Kubrick of destroying all that is so terrifying about Stephen King's bestseller. The, The best part was, is this film wasn't even a top 10 hit in the U.S. where it grossed $45 million, which was well over double its reported budget we will say which made it a, a success yeah the first i think it was out for like two weeks and then kubrick pulled it and then cut out i don't think 20 minutes of it and then re-released it so the people who had the you know to be able to see that original theatrical cut it, yeah it did not do well in the theaters cult status Shared experience of so many people encountering the film, which is to say, re-encountering it can be life-changing 
and transfiguring. If the viewer is able to submit, to think, and to care. Yeah, I think that's the thing is that you end up really caring for every one of these characters. Every viewing, you want to see it in the eyes of the character that you want to focus in on. It's so fun to rewatch this and say, hey, I'm only going to focus in on this character. And, and including Jack Torrance, because you feel sorry yes. for him. So even though you've seen this numerous times, you watch it. And yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, is, is it's, it's, you, you, you feel sorry for him, really. Yeah, it, that's the genius of this movie is that it, there's, uh, there's redeeming qualities of every character no matter if they're good or bad in this, that you ultimate humanity in this is that you see that. Yeah. Over the years, um, when I first started watching the shining and I haven't seen it as many times as you busy bee, but, um, I've seen it over 10 times for sure. And I, I used to feel bad for Jack a lot, but over the years, man, my focus has shifted more towards Wendy and Danny Again, shout out to Dr. Sleep for broadening that character in a lot of ways. But um, yeah, I, I just feel for her and I'm like, this dude, well, <laughs> I don't know if he needed help or if uh, he couldn't help himself because cause a will. Mm. So the transformative quality of one of the most important reasons for the Shiny's cult status, it's also a genuine devotion that his fans have cultivated for it. So I think what we mean by that is seeing the descent into madness or seeing the redemption of Wendy, you know, seeing these characters shift so much leaves you wanting to rewatch it, leaves you wanting to discover more about how this character got to be this way. What was the scene that made them snap? So you keep going back to it. You keep wanting to research more and more about this movie, which is, uh, you know, kind of really makes it timeless. You know, there's really nothing about this movie that doesn't mean that it can't be rewatched now than when it was in 1980. It's incredible the amount of research that people have put into this movie. And thankfully, because of this episode, I've dived way deeper than I ever have before. You're right. This is, this is why it achieved cult status. And uh, I mean, <laughs> transcended. Hmm. So, you know, and I think the, the one thing I kind of want to wrap up on the cult side is, you know, kids, kids seem to have a particular relationship with this film. Uh, I know I saw it when I was nine. Uh, and then it was on TV as well. It made a run on like ABC Friday night movies. Uh, a lot of other people who are unnaturally obsessed with it also saw it at a young age. If you see interviews and people talk about this, it's kind of one of those reigning things is, oh, I saw it when I was, you know, preteen. And a lot, of, a lot of people probably shouldn't have seen it when they were that age. And I think it just, everybody still holds on to this movie. It's like, yeah, it's one of those movies that freaked me out as a kid. You know, I, I, I've done stuff with, with Boss too, and I was like, oh, this movie freaked me out as a kid. It just doesn't hold up. This is one of those, it still grows with you. It, it follows you along adulthood. You look at the characters, you've got an old man, Dick Holleran, that you could probably still relate to if you were watching this movie in your 70s. 
as you become a father, you're looking at this completely different, you know, uh, you know, whether you're mother, father, when you're a kid, you're looking at it as Danny's age, you're, you know, all of these things. I mean, you go on these family vacations and you just, you kind of, sometimes you, you kind of see where Jack's coming from. Uh, <laughs> you know, especially when you can't find a hotel in South Dakota. Uh, oh, and I think uh, another thing I wanted to add on the cult side and maybe kind of on the production end was, you know, this was one of those first movies that was really developed and really made for VHS viewing. So uh, 1980s, this movie was probably viewed just as much at home and has just as big of an effect viewing in, the, in, in your home. Uh, whether you're with your family on family movie night or you're home alone watching this movie, it's a freaky movie. And the fact that you're, you don't necessarily have to be in a theater to get the full effect of this, I think it's the, the mind's eye on this one. Stanley also shot all of his scenes with a camcorder next to his, his film. So when he'd cut, he'd want to watch those scenes with the actors right away. It wasn't like he had to wait for the film to get processed, thrown up a projector. He'd, he'd take that right on over and say, Danny, let's look at this. Or he'd say, That's hey, innovative. Yeah. So I think this movie was one of those kind of cutting edge where it was like it, it, it held on to technology or it embraced technology. Stanley utilized that. And then at the same time, it actually was one of those that really did well as far as rentals and VHS viewing, uh, which kind of now, that's all we do now is home movies, home theater, uh, renting, streaming. So yeah, it's one of those that I I think I can always go back to and, and say, geez, you know, I did watch this at home and it's still just as freaky. It's, it holds up very well. A reconsidered masterpiece. Modern-day classic. No argument there with probably anybody. This was actually underlined in late 2018 when The Shining was added to the U.S. National Film Registry. The list of films considered culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. So this... What were they waiting for? Yeah, right. I mean, it puts it in, in a league of its own. The cultural influence over these years, because of the beauty of its cinematography, the caliber of its cast, and the enduring mystery it generates. Yeah, I think that's pretty much sums up why 40 years later, 41 years later, it is still worth watching again and again. I mean, it tells a horror story, yes, but The Shining is also about the strength of humanity, about fear and abuse, about who the real monster is. These are topics that resonate with audiences regardless of how many years have passed. It's, it's ultimately a timeless film. Yeah, The Descent into Madness is one of those that I think can hold up over time. I think it's the one fear that is... It doesn't matter what time frame it's in, you're gonna you're gonna relate to that. Kubrick's films are organized uh, as to force the viewer to interpret them holistically and conspir- uh, 
with conspiracy by slowing time to enable meticulous scanning of the existing or in, in I can't even say that word. The meticulous scanning of the men and scene. Mise-en-scene. Mise-en-scene. Uh, Mise-en-scene. <laughs> insisting on textual gaps and cruxes and thereby encouraging self-reflexivity, reflexivity and intertextual exploration. I think A lot it, of big words, but I think... Cole, you got this. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think if we were to sum this entire episode up into one little quote, it would be Kubrick's films are organized so as to force the viewer to interpret them holistically and conspirationally by slowing time. So basically, it leaves Conspiratorially. Them- yeah, conspiratorially. Yeah, I, I probably started throwing <laughs> off into something. Yeah, it that that right there sums up <clears throat> not only The Shining but most of his films in general. In that it leaves it open to interpretation, and that is why we are here today. We're sitting down, interpreting it in our ways, discussing popular theories as well. He, he does a great job of that. I mean, we've already talked about this. It's take it as you will. Yeah, I think what holds up too is the score <clears throat> creates peak tension to absolute nothingness at times. While other times the frame shows a shocking reveal while the score is subtle. He's really playing with that. He's playing with us this whole movie. Right. Um, you know, that, that I love the score in this. I think it's spot on it's perfect yeah the score and sound design are both incredible and work hand in hand with it's so important to this film uh without it it would not be the same referential and influenced media we touched on this a little bit already we're just gonna speed through it real quickly so this was tailor-made for technology that was just arriving on the market in the late 70s being the ultimate film for the VCR age. Now, a film can be experienced in a whole new way by viewers. No longer in the strictly linear fashion, characteristics of the movie theater experience, but from the comfort of one's own home on their TV set and at the leisure of their own time. So you don't have to go to a theater to experience this. Yeah, imagine how many people rewound that last scene right. back and forth. Like, what the fuck? Oh, dude. Like, is that him in 1921? Yeah. yeah. Like, how many VCR heads got burnt out on this fucking tape? The scene that has been referenced and parodied multiple times on television, such as The Simpsons and Family Guy. Um, I'm not going to go into the, but Stewie walks down a hallway. See two girls beckoning him to play. He responds, of course, by shooting in, <laughs> in the uh, all work, no play. Makes Stewie a dull boy. Uh, blows him up with a bazooka. Again, <laughs> yep, that's classic. The television show, The Gilmore Girls, references The Shining in at least five different episodes. Tim Burton claims to have been... Uh, to have based his characters Tweedledee and Tweedledum after the Grady twins in his film adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. So I was doing some research on IMDb, and I found that the original guy 
the KD, uh, KDK-1, the original Forest Ranger, he was in Tim Burton's Batman. He was uh, Thomas Wayne, uh, Bruce Wayne's dad in that. So there's a connection there, too. Wow. Uh, another one of my favorite movies. I love, I love the original 1989 Batman. Ooh, Michael Keaton. Fuck yeah. The Shining is also referenced in many music videos, such as being 30 Seconds to Mars, Slipknot, Alice in Chains, and many, many others. Martin Scorsese actually named it as one of his not only favorite, but scariest movies of all time. Yeah. Pixar Oscar winner Lee Unrich. He runs the Overlook Hotel. Overlook Hotel, definitely check it out. Uh, any of these people. It's a website, it's right? A, it's a website. It's a Tumblr page, but if you just look, just look up Overlook Hotel, um, uh, you, it's a website devoted to everything having to do about the film. Instrumental in helping provide finishing funds for the documentary for two, Room 2372. So Steven Spielberg actually counts his viewings of this movie in double figures. He even gave the, the Shining a loving tribute in Ready Player One. He took us on a dazzling virtual reality tour of the Overlook Hotel that brought Kubrick's masterpiece to a new generation. Quoted by uh, Spielberg, he says, I've seen The Shining 25 times. It's one of my favorite pictures, he says. Kubrick films to tend Kubrick films tend to grow on you. You have to see them more than once. I defy you to name a Kubrick film that you can turn off once, once you start it. It's impossible. Yeah. Hell yeah. The Shining is a critique of the whole genre of horror movies. Quote, The Shining is less of a horror film. Was The Shining is less a horror film than a meticulous, enthralling, academic imitation of one. More Stickinson. There are numerous, numerous Pixar references. So if we go on Toy Story 1995, Sid's distinctive carpet, it's the same kind of carpet that can be found in Toy Story as it can be in the movie where it adorns the home of the Toy Story torturer Sig. Sid. The number 237, Toy Story 3, garbage truck in one scene, reads RM237. Woody instant messages a toy whose code name is Velocistar237 and the model number of a security camera in Sunnyside Daycare Overlook is R237. The Sunnyside Intercom, again in Tour Story 3 2010, is an intercom that an exact, albeit animated, duplicate of the one used by Wendy Torrance. Shelley Duval in The Shining. Here's Johnny. Finding Nemo 2003. Bruce Shark echoes Jack Nicholson's most famous ad-libbed line from The Shining when he snarls, here's Brucey. Lastly, Jack Torrance's axe. Coco 2017. Dante the dog abruptly wakes up from a nap. In the background, we see a normal-looking axe stuck into a tree trunk. An axe could be just an axe where Unkrich, not sitting at the director's chair, earlier this year in an interview with Cinema Blend, he confirmed that the axe is, in fact, remodeled after one of the axes from The Shining. 
right behind that axe is a red metal storage drum in reference. Red rum. Red rum. Red drum, red rum. Red rum. Red rum. I think that, you know, we you can probably find more significant stuff. You know, I mean, anything with the twins, quick cuts to pretty. Oh, there's, there's references buried all over fucking pop culture with this film, man. I mean, they, they, I can't, I can't even recall like these, for these, I didn't even know about like Coco. That's, that's amazing. Cause I actually love that movie. Well, God bless you over there, boss tuna. You season oh, fuck. Yeah. Mr. Lurge is a bullshit. How about we dive into some of the themes and theories we've been uh, dancing around this entire time, guys? Yep. We are going to wrap up the show with themes and theories. Okay. So getting into theories, what we did, what we're doing is each one of us is going to come at you with a theory. And first up is going to be T-Bizzle. Yeah, bud. Yeah, bud. I'm going to cheat a little bit. I've got two theories that I want to talk about. Okay. So, well, and th this, this one isn't so much a theory as, as much as it is a, <laughs> as much as it is a theme. Uh, <laughs> nipple rubbing. That's for listeners who have no clue what the hell's going on. Um, is that is a theory or what? I'm getting confused. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of nipple, nipple rubbing and okay. shining. Getting this hard. is a theory <laughs> that has, it's a theme that runs throughout the film. Um, and that is of the Native American massacres that Stanley Kubrick has alluded to in previous films uh, like Full Metal Jacket. But in, in The Shining, there's Native American imagery that it suggests that the tide of terror that the film was advertised as, you know, that the tide of terror is here, mm. that it says Speaking on the poster. I'm going to massacre another beer. Correct that cold one, cuz. That, that term, the tide of terror being here, is in and of itself a reference to the white men driving out all of the Native Americans from all of their ancestral land that they had inhabited here before. I, I, I kind of see this as a mirror reflection of the blood scene, uh, the elevator blood scene, because as we discussed, the elevator has sort of a face to it, um, mm -hmm. a screaming face like, like Dick's face or Danny's face. And in the scene where Wendy finally comes around the corner and sees the the blood pouring, just pouring out of the elevator. That that's sort of like the blood of the natives, you know, as it is the victims in the film, and possibly a body that falls down in the blood in the elevator as well. That's you know, a little contentious aspect of the film. People have debated whether or not there is actually something falling in the blood, but I I like this theory because there there's plenty of Stuff go, or again, a theme. I think this is more of a, a sort of a running theme, a but theme, the theory right. is that, but the theory is that that a lot of the imagery and and, and the the subtext of The Shining is based or inspired by Native Americans being exterminated, being taken off their their land or the land that they inhabited. Rather, it's no one's land; it's just land, you know. And that's the way I think they kind of well, they were tribal, they were territorial, but. The line uh, referring to the Overlook being built on 
Native American ground. I think that's in the uh, scene where Allman is giving a tour. Oh, yeah, it's in yeah. the interview. Yeah. Yep. It's but but it's when he's walking out front and you yeah but in the parking lot is and and he said yeah because he says that the hotel was being attacked at the time of its construction by natives. Yes. So you're getting you're getting tie-ins that they're not. This is not in the novel. It's not there. There there's also a. A painting that I that I wanted to make reference to, and I, I found this out from Correlative Learning. It's called "The Great Mother" by a Native American artist known as Nobel Marceau, and some of that, that artist paint, like a few other paintings from that artist, are featured in in and throughout the hotel. And outside of um, outside of that, I think there's like some uh, tribal imagery in the. The Colorado Lounge, or there's there's something. Wendy Wendy asks about it. She's like, "Is all of this Native American art authentic?" And and the guy, uh, I think it's Allman, is like, mm-hmm. "Yes, this was inspired by the Navajo, the Apache." Um, so so like Kubrick is definitely grilling, like giving you some surefire Native American. I don't know. Like again, is it subtext? Is it what do you think he's trying to say? Like why include that? It, it, it puzzles me a little bit because I'm not sure. That's the best what, part about what, this what, movie is is the why. You can watch it ten times, and it's going to be you know you, you'll be getting different perspectives. Then you watch one YouTube video and you watch it ten more times, and you're like your mind is blown with what is being presented to you. So. Yeah, I mean, this, there's a lot going on here. I mean, yeah, I, I like how you explain this as not as much a theory, but a theme. Because you can't really, I mean, there's definitely a theme going on. Yeah, I mean, Jack, Jack uh, when he's talking uh, at the bar with Grady, right? Mm-hmm. He, he says, white man's burden. Oh, it's Lloyd. Yeah. Or is it Lloyd Grady? Yeah. No, it's Lloyd. It's, uh, white man's burden, Lloyd. White man's who's oh Grady's that yeah yeah I'm getting my characters mi- uh, mixed up but he he says white man's burden which is uh, a reference to the title of a poem by Rudyard 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 Kipling I don't know how to say Rudyard, that Rudyard Rudyard Kipling and this poem is basically boosting up the fact that white men came over here were very imperialist in in in, in how they wanted to conquer the land and basically take take over everything. It, it, there's there's stuff like that. Uh, Wendy mimicking the Keep America Beautiful campaign from 1971 when she's like, Keep America Clean mm-hmm. type deal. I, I was trying to look up the, 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 the 1921 uh, July 4th has a meaning to um, kind of a, it was a, there's a you know Native American and I and I hate that I am not bringing this up but the the it boils down to there's Native American slaughter. The head chief at the time said you know before he was murdered he said you know when you do this I will have revenge, and it happened to be that lightning struck this same type of hotel in 1921 and killed a bunch of people exactly on the same you know however long it was after this massacre and i think that whole uh going back in time on how he's possibly always been the caretaker um 
kind of ties into that. Like there's these reoccurring um, sort of like, I would say, uh, you know, revenge, like it'll always come, it'll come back to you type thing. Uh, and he'd like to use that, especially with his imagery. There's, uh, geez, I think there's over, there's probably over 237 Indian, Indian artifacts in that movie. Yeesh. Yeah, that's, and, and there's like even Yeesh. deleted scenes where, <laughs> where not deleted scenes, I don't know if they were filmed, but there were scenes in the script where like Jack came across his desk and there were supposed to be like arrowheads laid out on them and, and stuff like that, that taken out of the movie, you know, for, I guess, obvious reasons, if Kubert wasn't trying to jizz all over our face with the Native, Native American shit. Bring it on. But there is a parallel between the film and the real life founding of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Yeah. This, this was a horrific, bloody event, which countless Native Americans, they, they were murdered. Um, but perhaps the most famous Native person killed there was Hokalesqua, known as Chief Cornstalk. In 1777, Hokalesqua was living as a prisoner of American military. And one day after a group of Native Americans attacked some of the U.S. soldiers, those troops decided that they were going to enact mob justice against Hokalesqua, um, despite him having no involvement with the attack. So this was just some prejudice shit going on. Uh, legend states that Hokalesqua's final words were, May the curse of the great spirit rest upon this land. May it be blighted by nature. May it even be blighted in its hopes. May the strength of its people be paralyzed by the stain of our blood. So that's his dying words. He was basically laying down a curse. Curse, yeah. Putting a curse. This statement has very clear parallels with famous the famous wave of blood scene from the elevator, the elevator scene. Yep. Um, but... Its biggest link is also between Point Pleasant and The Shining. I mean, you're having these parallels going on here because in 1909, the same year that the fictional Overlook was completed, a real-life monument to Point Pleasant was struck by lightning. Is this what you were talking about? And exactly. Yeah, I appreciate you pulling that out because that, that one always intrigued me. It's weird. It's, it, it, it's almost like Passion of the Christ – this isn't a parallel, but it's a parallel story. Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus, he was struck by lightning twice during the making of that film. Now, was God mad at him? I don't know. But, but all I'm going to say is like, there's these weird things that happen around films. That, that's a whole rabbit hole in and of itself. I, I, I really feel like, not feel, I'm like, it's like I know that Kubrick was definitely trying to push this Native American idea or the, the genocide, I, I just don't get why. Like, uh, my thing is, I, I'm not sure what his purpose for it was to make people, you know, wake up to it or, because I think we're more awake to the fact of it now, but it's not changing anything for Native Americans. I mean, I'm not sure anyone's really banging that drum that hard at, at, at these days. Not that I know of. Last time it was banged really hard was King of the Hill. Um, John Raycorn got his acres because I'm, I'm going to finish this out with uh, the fake moon landing conspiracy. I love space. I love NASA. I love exploring space. I love the whole concept of it. 
So doc, the documentary Room 237 explores this a bit, but here's a few tidbits, and some of this was dug up by Brent. Some of this came from the, uh, the documentary, uh, aforementioned documentary, but the, here, here we go. Let, let's run down a few of these and see, see how, what we think. All work and no play. That line right there. Yes, but what is the theory? The, the theory, the theory itself, the moon landing theory is that Stanley Kubrick was hired by NASA or the government to film a fake moon landing. And 2001 was kind of the testing ground that he could do this with. Right. And if you, if, if you look at 2001 versus the actual footage of the moon landing, 2001 looks way better. That's, I don't think that's even a conspiracy. It just, it looks better on film than whatever the fuck, the real shit that, that was shot, if it's yeah. real. Well, or it was Kubrick dirtying it up with some grainy footage and being like, everyone that ever captures Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster or anything in space, it's going to look this crappy from now on for some reason. <laughs> the phones are great now. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, he, was, he did have a relationship with NASA. He did borrow <clears throat> you know, a lot of their equipment and a lot of these... Um, lenses that they'd use for their telescopes he was experimenting with but you know 2001 and i think that yeah the i i love how in-depth they got on room 237 about this because um there's a lot of parallels and especially drawing off of you know um, gemini twins the uh, <laughs> yeah. apollo, uh, apollo uh, uh shirt danny was wearing it's, it's funny because a lot of people will just say, you know, oh, yeah, the, the, you know, the moon landing conspiracy. But they don't realize, you know, some of the things you'd mentioned. And I want to emphasize that, yeah, he had a relationship with NASA. It's not like someone was like, hey, look, Danny's wearing a space shirt. No, it goes a lot deeper than what you, you see on the surface. That's what I'm saying. Could be, could be real footage of the moon landing or it could be old, uh, old Kubrick. The, the phrase all work and no play, this right here, all, could be a, um, a stand-in for A11, Apollo 11, okay? There's also Danny wearing a sweater, like, like Boss Tuna mentioned, that has the rocket sewn on the front. And when he stands up right there from the launch pad carpet, the rocket is blasting off. We've got that. The, the actual room number itself, room 237, is a reference to how far away the Earth is from the moon. Roughly, you know, approximately 237,000 miles. That, that, that's one that, that fucks with me a little bit because you don't, there's no good reason for Kubrick to change the number from the novel. Because in the novel, it's room 217. Why change it to 237? What's the meaning behind that? It, has he ever said, Brent, do you know if Kubrick has ever come out and said why he changed it? I mean, the, the, that number alone in the movie appears in lots of different ways too. Like, you know, row, two rows of three, uh, seven images next to it. So I, they, that, that, I think the number 237 is almost one of those, especially like I think the number 24 and flipping around is 42. There's just all sorts of like crazy numerology <clears throat> things going on with that, all kind of circulating around 
237, you know, 237 seconds into the movie, you're going to see this scene, which is going to be that, you know, two minutes and 37 seconds, there's this scene. I think we look at what we want into that, but the, you know, the, the design of that carpet is the same layout as like the actual launch pad itself. Um, these are like kind of, I think more privy information that this guy was kind of putting in too. It wasn't just, uh, he was using like the, you know, the, you know, showing the Gemini twins, which was the actual, you know, code name for uh, the Apollo mission was, you know, project Gemini. And I, I think that one kind of really holds up and that one's probably the more entertaining. Of them. I, I, I agree. And I, I do want to say that I'm not going to do this theory justice. Um, there's people out there who have spoken about it better than I. And I, I, I also, like we've said already, recommend room 237. Go watch that documentary for a little bit more on that. But those two theories are my favorite theories as far as what's going on in the subtext of The Shining. My dude, what you got for us? Yeah, I got kind of an entertaining one too. <clears throat> this one uh, I just actually discovered last, uh, last year at this time. So I'm calling this one the Red Rum Road. And it's kind of the correlation between the Beatles and Stanley Kubrick and we'll kind of kick it off with the fact that The Shining, the title itself to the novel was inspired by John Lennon's first post-Beatles album, Instant Karma, We All Shine On. In fact, uh, the book is dedicated to King's son, Joe Hill King, who shines on and that's the way he you know, dedicated the book. <clears throat> You know, that's kind of interesting that King had that. But the Beatles actually approached Stanley Kubrick, um, let's say like, you know, 1969 to um, when they were still the Beatles. And that's kind of when the Beatles broke up around then. Um, approached Stanley Kubrick with the idea of doing a film adaptation of The Lord of the Rings starring the Beatles. So Kubrick uh, was a fan. Uh, and, you know, they, they liked the work that he was doing. They approached him. Nothing ever came about on that. Um, but the whole theory behind, or I should say the, you know, kind of entertaining uh, side note is this Red Rome Road. It has to deal with Abbey Road, last Beatles album put together. If you play Abbey Road three times during this whole movie, during what they call a mirror form. So that's playing the movie forwards at the beginning and backwards and you overlay that. So it's a mirror form. So you're, you know, the first scene is the opening credits matched up with the end credits playing backwards and they meet in the middle. So you put in the album exactly three, three lengths throughout this mirror form thing. So there's, there's all these crazy like uh, overlay sequences in both uh, the music's rhythms. It's the old like, you know, Dark Side of the Moon with uh, Wizard of Oz. Yep. You know, this sort of stuff, you just, you, you almost have to try it out. So there's um, a really great, uh, uh, call him an author, uh, great website. This guy's dedicated way too much time to it. And I think any huge... Shining fan, you can obviously go go down that rabbit hole too. But a great guy, uh, his website is Ice Cream, like uh, your eyeball and scream, Ice Cream two three seven dot ca, and you just jump jump in there, 
check out any of this stuff on that. But he's got some links to be able to check out this actual mirror form. You kind of have to sync up your, your music to it. But uh, Abbey Road also happens to be the re recording studio that the band uh, recorded a few of the songs on The Shining's actual soundtrack. So the last song and the end of the credits is that Midnight and the Stars and You. You know, like, da, 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 da. That was recorded at Abbey Road Studio. Um, Midnight, the stars and you. So the other, the other thing too, there's a lot of coincidences, or I should say like this thing that they call oh. is the Abbey Road Tour. Uh, when the Torrances take a tour of the hotel, they always look like that album cover where all four of them are walking in line across yeah. in this kind of odd walk it's not necessarily normal but he highlights that through all four different parts of the uh the tour of the hotel that he's giving i it's to me it's one of those these are this is that that kind of new thing that man i've got the technology i can sync up my projector and get my you know itunes clicked on right at the right time we got to get together and do that that would be i'd love to see how it matches so, up and I, I would I would recommend if breaking down this this guy just he's got really good screen captures and breaking down like hey on this first part of this song you'll notice these two images that kind of coincide with what was going on in Stanley's life or the Beatles at the time so to me I find that to be hugely entertaining and as well one of those things where it's another layer of mystery and did Kubrick actually edit a movie to be done this way joe blow horror show patreon idea we're going to do a watch along for the red rum road boom and we'll brew a shining beer for it and we'll Love give it. We'll, we'll sample we'll give a couple samples out to some patrons maybe episode yeah, one they have to pay <clears throat> maybe episode 100 yeah, yeah. okay so the last <laughs> thing we have and both of those were great the, the the good thing about those are they could coincide. You could have in the same movie, he could have purposely done the moon landing stuff and the native American and the, the, the uh, red rum road. I As believe he did. I believe it's all of this. I'm just going to say be. I think it's it very movie. well. could be okay. the rabbit hole. I went down researching this movie. I don't regret. I don't regret the time, the wakeless nights, the divorce. No, I'm kidding. I'm not divorced. Oh, oh. <laughs> um, no, but seriously, I don't regret all the time I spent into this. And to put the cherry on top, one of the last things I found was hands down by – and guys, these are just a handful of the theories. I mean, we just picked our favorites. There are a lot of other theories out there. The reason I'm going last – is because I feel that this is the most relevant. And pre-show, I was talking to these guys. I had four handwritten back-to-back -back pages of notes, and I'm like, there's no way. You know, we, we could have done a four-part series on just this theory. I'm like, I have to condense this down. So now I just have one front-to-back page on it. But this – It's all my, one sentence. <laughs> pretty yeah. much. Is, I didn't it a, is, it a, is it a woke-ass theory? Uh, it's, it's a broke-ass theory, but <laughs> it put my fucking brain in a pretzel. And what I'm going to say is the first thing you need to do is 
if you like what we get into, especially with this Wendy theory, I obviously didn't just come up with this. You can go on YouTube and just search the shining Wendy theory. The part one is a 40 minute video and the guy's got a part two where he literally breaks down every scene. So what I'm going to do is just kind of go through a handful of bullet points here and try to do my best and to keep this succinct and, and not all over the place. But again, my mind is still in a pretzel after looking at this because I, I feel this is the most plausible theory of everything. And the first thing I want to... Well, and Cole, just right out the gate, this is a new theory. This was dropped last year. So it's not, you know, if it not is. two years ago. If it, but I, I found out about it last year and I was mind blown. Yeah, this is, this is like one of those things that, you know, people will do where, you know, like those, I know Tibu is really into the uh, serial killer, you know, type of stuff or whatever, you know, like the Zodiac killer. I feel like after watching this video, like four or five times that I did, I feel like Kubrick went in and like, this is the Zodiac killer version of a director in that he what he put in front of us was the Dybbuk box and it took 40 years for someone to crack it. That's how I feel about this theory. Wow. I'm super pumped about this. And I feel like this is what it was. So just to preface everything, if, if you guys so on the DVD, I have, if you watch special features, there's a handful of, of experts and directors and whatnot. Basically they're, you know, they're on their knees and they just unzipped the pants of, of Stanley Kubrick, pulled out his quarter pounder, no pickles, no tomatoes, made fresh to order. And they were just going at it with them. And one of the directors basically said that the best thing you can do to help yourself understand this movie is understand that Kubrick himself was an expert photographer before anything else. Photography is his first and his number one love. And he was expert at it with his composition, the way that he went about the whole everything. When you also couple that with the fact that he was an expert and gifted chess player, that will kind of get you in the mindset of where I'm coming from with the Wendy theory here. So Stanley Kubrick was basically a genius who decided to be a filmmaker. Like, like he didn't go into rocket science. He didn't go into writing or, or well, he did write. You know what I mean? He was like, like you're saying, this guy is a genius who just decided I'm going to be a filmmaker. Yes. Pretty much. Yep. So part of uh, this theory, I think that makes it work is that it's not something that you're going to come up with right away. How this theory developed was the questions people had over the years. Why did this happen this way? What is the meaning of the movie? Uh, why just, just, it's that what we talked about when TV was talking, the question, why? That essentially bred this theory and what this guy figured out with it. So keeping that in mind with what we just said, this theory ultimately states that the so-called continuity errors observed, you know, from, from scene to scene were not actually continuity errors. They were purposeful. And this movie is fraught with, you know, in one scene, this lamp is here and it's not, you know, there's tables appearing and it, it, it's not just, there's things that, and you can say that they're continuity errors because if you go on IMDb, every single movie, there's, or every single movie, there's going to be a section that says errors and they'll have continuity errors like, oh, well, you know, the truck that they drove uh, was green, but then it was blue in the next scene. And, you know, that, that's, that's different from 
what I feel are some of the things in with this movie here. Kubrick was was too meticulous to have some of these. And, and I will admit that, yes, some of what you might see on that video can be a stretch. But most of it, you're going to be like, yeah, that's, that can't be a mistake. So if we want to start out, um, the first example is when Wendy is, you know, I mean, that we're going to talk about is when Wendy is checking in on um, Jack. So a lot of this is going to start with the very beginning of the movie, but what caught this guy's eye was he watched the scene when Wendy is checking in on Jack. This is early on in the movie when he's typing and she's coming in and the chair keeps appearing and disappearing. So you know, when you have certain things in the Colorado room, even if they shot everything in one long shot and they edited stuff in, that would mean that Kubrick purposely took this chair and moved it multiple times throughout these shoots and camera angles. <laughs> so when you think about it, yeah, that's not a, that's not a continuity error when this one particular chair throughout the entire movie is being moved multiple, multiple times. So when Wendy is coming in, and you have uh, the chair in the back of Jack that keeps appearing and, and disappearing. Also, the biggest thing with when you, so the, the Wendy theory basically states that whenever the camera is behind Wendy and it's her point of view, she's hallucinating. And there are certain things that will evident this. So she walks in, you see Jack typing there and there's a normal camera shot and angle. And she comes up from her point of view and he rips the paper out. So that's where he was like, okay, something's not right because, you know, she rips the paper out and she has this conversation with, with Jack and, the, and, you know, the paper gets ripped out of the, the paper. Well, when she walks away and also to watch room 237, because they will, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen room 237, you're probably like already lost, but she walks away. Jack's sitting there and he's got just this weird look on his face and his hair is perfectly straight. Yep. It's not disheveled and the paper is in there. So what happens is, is, is Wendy, this is a scene where Jack basically freaks out on her and tells her, get the fuck out of here. And when it's at Wendy's point of view, Jack's hair is all disheveled and he's yelling and screaming at her when she's walking away and it's Jack's point of view. And you see Jack, his hair is nice and neat and he's, he doesn't have the look on his face of a man that just told his wife to get the fuck out. He has a look on his face, like what just happened. So this is where the whole thing starts with her imagining things, uh, shall we say. So the evidence and I guess basis of reality during the interview and the walkthrough. So what this means is, is now that we've gotten idea of what the Wendy theory is, what's going to help us understand what is real and what is not real is going to be when first off is when you have the interview because Wendy was not there. So everything that you see in the interview is actual. This is the way it is. The, the paintings are here, you know, the carpets are here. And then, you know, some people might counter this by saying, well, you know, they were closing up. They probably moved stuff. Well, then we're going to reference the actual walkthrough. So when Wendy comes back with Jack and Danny and they're walking through, you'll notice with the camera angles, you know, going through. So you're going to be able to tell because that whole scene doesn't have a per se Wendy point of view. It's going to have, you know, the point of view of, of it's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be, everyone so what, what what you're going to see is is 
where things should be as far as you know light switches on the storage room the whole two bits with that so that's where you're going to have to base this whole theory of if we talk about a couple of the big scenes that people have talked about before the tv scene you know when when danny is is watching tv and wendy is there it's clear and this is talked about in room 237 and you know anybody that's obsessed and done research with this movie is like yeah they're watching a tv that's not plugged in well this is evidence that it's it's a hallucination the tv is not plugged in also danny quickly becomes bored i mean i've got young kids we've all got young kids you're not going to get bored just watching a tv and he asks to go get his fire engine um that's because the tv is not actually on he's just sitting there watching the, the snowfall the camera placement again you always have to keep you know that in the back of your head watch where the camera placement is because that's going to let you know uh, what I guess is real and what's a hallucination. So in the next scene, when Danny goes to get his fire engine, you know, we know that that is a hallucination. Part of it is, is, is the fact that when you do the walk around and when he's there for the interview, that room layout is completely different. There's no way that the bed's going to be situated where it's at because you can't have an end table there. So that whole thing has been, hallucinated in in wendy's head and again i'm just giving you a quick rundown um another big thing that people have questions about is danny and his shining so the first i guess instance of the shining is with the ice cream scene with hallorin we know this is a hallucination because the light switch on the storage room um is gone it's appearing and disappearing so uh in one second the light switch is there and then when it switches the camera pov and Danny Stites starts shining with Halloran, it's gone. We know that light switch needs to be there and it's gone. And so we know that this whole shining thing is just a hallucination with, um, with ultimately Wendy. Uh, what about the shining scene in the storage? Well, obviously, that, and we might have talked about this earlier, I can't remember. The biggest thing is just going to be, you know, when they walk into... Uh, the storage you have the one camera angle that shows them all walking in and then it switches it's the cans of tang we know that the cans of tang are supposed to be there and the camera switches and you get the hallucination the cans of tang are all mixed in with the bunch of kool-aid this is the one when i was watching this video this is where my brain really started you know going into you know pretzel mode because there's three other shots afterwards where things flip flop back and forth and it's all because of the camera angles. So either I, I, go ahead. Yeah. Keep, I no, just no. want to point out there, there, the thing is the moon landing conspiracy. And there's also images of uh, native Americans in the, in the storage room too. So what's all in the storage room? Maybe it's a mixture of all the theories. And be. Themes? Yeah. I don't know. It's funny because I have a can of that Calumet baking soda in my kitchen right now with the Indian on it. I love that. Uh, yeah, there's also Damn. tons of beetle references in that storage room too. It's oh. crazy. That's why I said, I mean, there's oh, so much crap. It's everything. It's everything. It it's got to be everything. Yeah. Yeah. Charles Grady, this is a quick one too. I mean, I almost thought about not putting this on because this is a, this is a conversation to be had right here. So ultimately, there's the question of is why is he 
introduces Charles Grady in the interview, but Delbert Grady later on. And it's because his real name is Charles Grady. We found that out in the interview. We know that's all true. Jack kind of, he basically foreshadows what's going to happen because he is talking about the fact that his wife is a horror horror novel fan or whatever he said. And he called her, was that? He says, bit of a horror fan. A bit of a horror fan. Yeah, not a horror fan, a horror fan. Horror fan. Yes, yes, not to be confused with horror, horror fan. But Jack, so what we gather from this is that Jack was excited. He, the whole thing is, is he wants to go up here. He's looking for this time to get away. And I mean, it's your stereotypical writer scenario. Yeah. You want to go in the middle of nowhere and get inspiration and do the whole two bits. So in the back of his mind, he's kind of like, you know, a salesman, what do I need to do to tell my wife? The first thing he did was, is he went and told her, Hey, you know, this is the story about the last caretaker thinking that she would like it. And he just said Grady. He never said the first name, which was Charles. So later on in the movie, when there's the the scene of him talking to quote unquote Delbert Grady, we know that that name is made up because she doesn't know his first name. She's just fabricating something in her little pea-sized woman brain. No, I'm just kidding. But (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I want to say, she has to be crazy because who names anyone Delbert? Sorry for anyone out there who's named Delbert, but Delbert is. I, I'm pretty sure that's a more of a common, popular UK kind of name. So sure. clearly, with that accent, nobody yeah. talked about that either. I wonder why he had that British accent. Huh. Yeah, probably so, the casting. Uh, you know, the, it, it does shed light on, you know, I mean, I, I like this theory and how we're kind of capturing it into, you know, mental health. I think it's kind of one of those things where it kind of explains a lot, especially in these, you know, the past few years, it's been, it been more brought to light, like, hey, this is a serious, you know, issue, we should talk about this more. And I think that, you know, it's, it's probably akin to what Kubrick was going through with his sort of uh, mental anguish. You know, he was an expat, left the United States, you know, living in in uh, England. Uh, there's a lot of uh, kind of things that I think it might tie into his own sort of anguish and, you know, sure. uh, correlating to Wendy. Yeah. Uh, room 237. So we first have to talk about every scene with the trike. And it's all from the back of it, which is also known as the Wendy point of view. The trike is different throughout the movie. And this is evidenced by seeing it on closing day. It's a completely different trike with colors and, and, you know, because when you first walk in and you see all of their gear or or luggage, I should say, sitting there, it's a completely different trike, different colors, bells on different sides, streamers, the whole thing. Well, it's different from when we're seeing it with Wendy's point of view. So we know that this whole part is actually a, um, uh, a hallucination. Also, I'm going to touch real quickly on the carpet pattern. This changes uh, when Danny is playing by room 237. So this is going in and out of reality with the different camera angles. So obviously there's that little, the, the way that the, the camera ain't, or the camera, the carpet has that brown stripe on one side and the back. The camera angle will tell you what's hallucination, what's not. 
the ball that gets rolled to her. So this is a very good point. And, and we might've touched on this earlier, but with how big that hotel is. And at this point with, you know, Wendy supposedly thinking that Jack's losing his mind, there's no way a good mother is going to let their, their son play in a completely different wing of the hotel. So the ball that rolls to Danny is rolled by Wendy. So Danny knows Wendy is there. The ball gets rolled. He looks up and the first thing he says is mommy, because he knows she's there. She's in one of the rooms. Well, she is the one that unlocked the room. And the one thing that just again fucking scrambled eggs brain right now is Cooper tells us exactly who is in room 237 because as soon as Danny opens the door to go into room 237 there's a transition where it transitions to Wendy in the basement by the boilers so the way that transition works is she's literally standing right inside of room 237 I mean, he kind of put it on a silver platter. She is 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 the one that's there. I, I do have. Well, I was just going to say those wipes that he used. They were way longer than most movies, and yeah. there's something to be said when they kind of match up like that. Kind of going back to that mirror form, uh, red room robe thing. There's quite a lot of symbolism to when he's doing that. Yeah, purposeful. I'm going to run through a couple couple of the last ones real quick. Uh, Munchausen syndrome by proxy MSBP that's that's a good one basically she's the one that hurt danny is whether where this theory is going and if you know anything about msbp it's it's not as much that they're trying to physically hurt or or keep them it's it's all about basically the the sympathy uh they get from others and that feeling of of trying to help um or or helplessness as far as that goes but you know she's looking for sympathy from the doctor uh, in the beginning if we go to the gold room so this is when jack's you know quote unquote starting to lose it and he's going in and having drinks with lloyd that whole scene is is a hallucination the sign is completely different entering the gold room the stage is completely different uh it's a lot bigger uh Getting a little bit further along, Danny walking into the Colorado room when he's sucking his thumb after he apparently gets hurt. Uh, we know that there's two different things going on here. So there's the point of view of Wendy and there's actually what's happening. So the point of view of Wendy is him walking in and her freaking out like, oh my God, what happened? And then you get the point of view of Jack and Jack sitting there like, you know, what's, what's going on? What's she doing? And we know that there's hallucinations going on because this is another scene where that table is appearing and disappearing and reappearing and disappearing. Danny and when it goes to Jack's point of view, Danny and Wendy are all of a sudden 20 feet away from the stairs and they were like pretty much up against the stairs. There's a missing carpet going on. It's just, it's really amping up at this point. Uh, the last thing is, why does Halloran show up if, um, you know, Wendy hallucinated Danny's shining? Uh, this is, uh, so the call to Durkin was real. So when he's at the airport and he calls his his friend that owns that shop, that call was real. And the theory for the Wendy theory is, is that everything he tells him is true. He got a call from Ullman that said, go check and see if we need to get them replaced. What happened is, is, when Wendy is going to the, the, the radio room in Ullman's office to make the calls and checking in, and then when Jack goes in, it, there's signs that will tell you when Wendy's hallucinating and when she's not, and it's because the light switch on the outside of his office 
And the biggest thing is on his desk, his nameplate is gone. So when Jack goes in and to, to make the call, he actually makes a call to the fire service to relay a message to Ullman that says they need to get taken out because of a medical emergency. So that's the whole thing with, with, you know, why did Halloran show up? Um, you know, if, you know, there's no shining. Uh, lastly, you know, the main thing is what happens to Jack. And this whole scene is very interesting with Wendy and the bat. Um, again, there, this scene is only about three minutes long, but there are so many different changes going back and forth between the different camera angles because the camera will be behind Jack and it'll be behind Wendy. Shit's appearing and disappearing. It's getting crazy at this point. Basically, Jack's trying to talk to Wendy and calm her down. She hits him, and she actually does hit him with the bat. She knocks him out. It's shown her dragging him into the storage room. We know this is a hallucination because the light switch is gone on the storage room, and it should be there. She didn't drag him into the storage room. She drug him out into the maze, and that's where... He died. The entire rest of the movie after that is a hallucination, and it's very evidently seen. Even with Holleran showing up, you know, Wendy going back out, you know, the camera shows us when Holleran comes up and which way his cat's facing. When Wendy goes out, the cat's facing a different way because she doesn't know the direction he came. I mean, it, it, it's wild. I would highly recommend Googling, or not Googling, YouTubing, the Wendy theory shining watch that 40 minute video. And if you want to get balls deep into it, he's got another one that is a full scene by scene. Yeah. That's um, Rob Navarro. Uh, if you, if you want to know the, the person who made it, he made the Wendy theory. It is a great theory, but I've got the, uh, I've got the thing that kills the Wendy theory. Oh, you called, do, do you? It's called Dr. Sleep. Uh. Well, Dr. Sleep is not a Kubrick, and I haven't seen a, it, but it's not a Kubrick it is, film. It is a sequel to the Kubrick film. but With, with kind of the blessing not, of King? Yep. So it's a yeah. marriage of both. Yeah. Yep. No. If Kubrick did, <laughs> if Kubrick did Dr. Sleep, then I'd be like, yep. Yeah. Or if he had like some sort of, I just don't, don't see him doing a sequel to that, but. No. He ghost, he he ghost wrote it with um fucking flanagan right yeah flanagan had dreams of kubrick and kubrick was like listen that, li that little boy he's gonna get eaten no okay look boss tuna you gotta watch dr sleep i won't I dude i've it. had the dvd forever oh no you haven't seen it yet no hmm. i'll watch it but I'm does anyone much have anything I... else to add with the theories uh, that Wendy theory, one last thing, kind of note on that. There was this scene where he's in the bar with Lloyd. He's getting sloshed. He's, you know, and then all of a sudden he walks from the bar back up to see Wendy. And she's like, did you, did you see anything? It's like, not a damn thing. So he was completely sober. So she's, you know, hallucinating his, you know, alcoholism. Right. And, you know, you know, he's going back to whatever. So. Did did she hallucinate the Playgirl magazine that he was reading though? Yeah, about that. That was that was weird. Yeah, no, kind of she, uh, she actually did. That's just there's so weird. many weird little <laughs> little deviancies. There's some things that we'll have to wait another forty years to figure out. <laughs> so, 
All right. Yeah. Yeah, buds. Guys, this has been fucking hella fun. And I've learned some things. And I'm so happy that I was able to be here and record this episode. Episode 50 of the Joe Blow Horror Show. Busy B brought all the info and the good trivia. Boss Tuna bought the good trivia. I was lucky enough to be here and just be a talking head. Guys, thank you so much. The Shining, Joe Blow Horror Show. This has been fucking awesome. We give you guys a lot of information. We hope you enjoyed it. We put a lot of work and effort into this show. Busy B, any final words before we sign off? Uh, instant karma is going to get you. <laughs> is going to get you. If you let me out right now, Wendy, I'll forget this whole thing ever happened. And with that, I hope it was as good for you as it was for us. Boom. Boom. Thank you.